I loved Queen Desiri always, and nobody else. And if you do not understand that, you will never understand all the things I am going to tell you at all, because that was always the main thing. Just about everything else changed as time went on. I made new friends and lost old ones. Sir Garveon taught me how to use a sword, and Garsek showed me how I could be stronger and quicker than I had ever known, quiet sometimes, or so fierce and wild that brave men who saw me ran. But that never changed. I loved Desiri, and nobody else but Desiri, and there was never a minute in the whole time when I would not have died for her. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, if you haven't joined us before, this is the world's smallest book club for large books. Uh, I say it every time, but our gimmick is to read books over 500 pages and then talk about them for sometimes longer than it takes to read the book, it might feel like. But we can't, <laughs> we, you know, we can't help ourselves. We just we love it so much. Um, we are really excited about this podcast. Yes, Bill? <laughs> yes, yes. We I are. mean, in general, but this episode in particular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should say episode. Yeah, I should say episode. No, we're, we're genuinely very, very excited. Um, and I should preface, for anyone who's seen the title of this podcast before clicking on it, if you are a fan of this particular author, be kind to us. <laughs> um, okay, so we for this podcast, we read... Um, the Wizard Knight by Gene Wolfe. I'm calling it The Wizard Knight. It was published as two books in 2004, um, The Knight and then The Wizard, actually. But it's The Wizard Knight. It's one book. I mean, it is one book. Um, but yeah, so it's well within the uh, <laughs> the range of what we usually read. And it is the first Gene Wolfe book that I read. And I believe that's true for you, too. Yeah, Bill? Uh, it is the only Gene Wolfe book that I have read. Right, so, yes. fair. Yeah, okay, touche. Um, but yeah, so the, so, here, so the good news is that we're pumped, we're excited, and Gene Wolfe offers a vast richness to talk about. Um, the, the only intimidating factor is if you search for Gene Wolfe in any of your podcast threads, you're going to find like 20 podcasts just on Gene Wolfe. Um, the two best that I kind of, I've come across are rereading Gene Wolfe, um, which is hosted by um, James Wynn, is one of the co-hosts, and he's actually name-checked in a book we'll talk about soon. And there's another podcast called the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, and these are like chapter-by-chapter chapter episodes <laughs> on like one Gene Wolfe book at a time. So we're going to attempt to do what others have done in 20 hours of podcasting and about two hours of podcasting, <laughs> um, which I think we'll be good at. I think we'll be fine. But... Um, but yeah, so Gene Wolfe is, I would call him an immediate favorite. You too, right, Bill? Uh, yes, I have read one book by Gene Wolfe, and Gene Wolfe is one of my favorite authors of all time. Yeah, I've read I've read two and a half books. Um, I put the Book of the New Sun down when I realized it was a book that I would have to read obsessively and I didn't have time for. But um, I've read The Fifth Head of Cerberus and The Wizard Knight and part of the Book of the New Sun, and I agree. It, he, uh, he's like, I don't know. I don't have any really rankings, you know, but like the best way I can say, best way I can explain my enthusiasm for Gene Wolfe is that when I go to a bookstore, a used bookstore, there's a couple authors I look for, and that if I find 
Um, I'm allowed to buy, even though we literally have no more room for books in our house. <laughs> I'm contemplating building, you know, like ceiling built-in bookshelves <laughs> to accommodate our books. But um, my wife has already kind of like, you know, you know, kind of given the marriage pass of like, yes, if you see Gene Wolfe, you are allowed to buy him. I understand what he means to you, along with like Dennis Johnson, Penelope Fitzgerald, Muriel Spark. So he's kind of already entered my personal canon, which... I think is actually how everyone feels about Gene Wolfe who likes Gene Wolfe, right? I mean, that's certainly the impression I get from when he comes up on Twitter or, you know, when you read about him in somebody else's, um, you know, somebody else's essays about science fiction or fantasy. And my understanding is all of his work kind of bridges the gap. And this is just fantasy, but my understanding is that, like, the Book of the New Sun is sort of both. Um, but it appears pretty much to... to to read Gene Wolfe is to love him, pretty much. I mean, I'm sure there are people who hate him because there are people who hate every good thing in this world, but uh, you don't actually see that very often. You, <laughs> most of the great writers of the 20th century and beyond who've read Gene Wolfe talk about him in a sort of reverent, almost cultic way. Uh, yes. And that appears to still be true today among writers who are who are writing now. Uh, he's something special. Well, and I feel like... Um... You can't be prepared for Gene Wolfe. So like I so I, I don't know where I first came across Gene Wolfe in like the uh you know the sphere of literary influence. Like I'm not sure who first told me about him, like what article or led me to him. I it, it's possible that I found him actually by way of liking John Crowley, who um a lot of people who love Gene Wolfe also like John Crowley. So like we have a, a book here called The Wizard Knight Companion, a lexicon for Gene Wolfe's The Wizard and the The Knight and the Wizard. It's by Michael Andre Druissi, which I apologize, Michael, for probably butchering your name. Um, but he, so this guy also wrote um, or co-edited Snake's Hands, the fiction of John Crowley. So they, I feel like, I don't know, John Crowley, Gene Wolfe, they often kind of lump together as like the highfalutin science fiction fantasy guys, you know, who can kind of, with, he, they kind of, they can withstand um, a scholarship approach to them, you know, while still being just great fun writers. Um, anyway, I don't know where I first found him, like why I first wanted to read him, but once you hear of him, you really only hear of him in glowing terms. Like I, I'm sure that, I think the people who don't want to read Gene Wolfe, they just put it down and say, not for me. You know what I mean? I think it'd be, it'd be hard to like attack him per se. Um, at least I haven't read a good attack on him. Whereas there's so much praise of him and pushing you toward Gene Wolfe and somehow I, you're still not prepared for him. Right, like I, I, I was ready for him to be good and interesting, and I started the Wizard Knight. I actually started it as an audiobook before I jumped to reading it normally, and it, like I, I had to jump to the normal book because I just needed more time to think about what was happening. And this, arguably, the Gene Wolfe Wookie says this is his most accessible text, <laughs> potentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Don't you think that's true? Like, like I was like, cause I, I sent you this book. I was like, Hey, Bill, you like this book? And I think you opened it, and you were like what did I walk into, right? That's exactly right. Like, you gave me this book for, I think, for my birthday two years ago, and I started reading it not long after that, and uh, got about 10 pages in and said, okay, this is something very different from what I thought it was, something that I can already tell is uh, incredibly beautiful, and I don't have time for this right now. (laughs) This book, at least, and I I can't speak to the others, uh, this book is, it's not difficult in the sense that it's like, Joycean, right? Or like, you know, he's every other word is some sort of 
crazy Latin word you've never heard of, right? right? But it's it's difficult in the sense that it requires attention because throwaway lines will end up being very important plot points later on. And it's difficult because, for things we'll talk about more later, because the protagonist is writing about it years later. It's, it's all written as a letter to his brother, right? And because he's writing about it years later, he'll reference things that haven't happened yet or characters you haven't met yet, or he'll reference characters you did meet very briefly as though you should remember who they are. And he'll, um, you know, there's some bouncing around in time and some some uh, memory loss, right? So it's a disorienting book because it's disorienting for the narrator, right? Like that's that is yeah, the right, right headspace to be in. It's not a, it's not a fun little game. It's this is the, the experience of the, the book is in trying trying to to get you to have right because this is what his life was like, uh, the narrator's. And so it is a difficult book in the sense that you do have to pay attention to it. And also, every line almost is just incredibly beautiful. And so if you're just reading through it quickly, you're missing out on all the little jokes and all the little profundities that are throughout the text. So uh, it is a very different book than any book I've ever read before. I don't know if I've ever read a book like this. I mean, I, I've read books like it in some ways, but I don't think I've ever read a book which like unifies those different things into one piece so well. No, and I, I think, I, I don't know, I, I feel like for, for several years now, I've been struggling with how, well, to speak in public, period, I guess, but how to speak about um, books that are like, difficult to read in a way that changes up the usual cliches. Because I feel like, so for a long time, there's one part of, like, you know, the book world, which really, really hates the idea of, like, a difficulty, you know, being praised for itself, which is correct, I think. Something difficult shouldn't, you know, that doesn't in and of itself make it good, obviously, right? There's like a, um, you know, a midwit kind of notion out there that I think sometimes I'm scared to like step into, you know. But I, I but it's, because honestly, like I don't know how, to, I don't know how to talk about this book without talking about it as like, you know rewarding attention right it does reward attention and there is an intellectual element to it there's like in a you know um a layered a layered way in which the book you know works right like it's not just one level of like hey this is an adventure story it's also this bizarre kind of like commentary on growing up it's also playing with the idea of allegory while always running away from allegory and so i don't know i just i i i feel like um I wanna I wanna get to a place where I can basically defend like quote unquote high art without defending high art if that makes sense you know what I mean? you know what I mean like and I feel like this book is doing something worthy of being explicated at the level of just form you know but I also don't know how to do that without one like falling into jargon of scholarship or two falling into this kind of like you know um, middle brow way of speaking about art as like it's a way to better yourself. Um, because I think it's about pleasure still, but I do think this is this is a different sort of pleasure than you're going to get from Ulysses or than you're going to get from basically any other fantasy novel, right? Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I you know I'm not great at extemporaneous stuff, which is why I have a podcast where I record myself doing that. But I uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I do. It's a thing. It's something I don't know. It's something I've overthought to death. Um, this idea of like, how do we actually talk about you know? the best of art without kind of putting it into this, you know, glass tower or without making it this kind of self-help genre of, you know, eat your vegetables. But anyway, Gene Wolfe's great. I do think, I think there's a pretty apt uh, uh, analogy for what it's like to read a Gene Wolfe book for, especially this book, 
there is a way in which you have to step through the portal completely. You have to like like opening the book is opening a portal, which is you know a classic kind of you know maybe book image. But truly, with Gene Wolfe, you have to just accept that you're entering a whole new plane of thinking. And if you can't be in that headspace, it's hard to continue reading him. I think because it's not demanding. It's more of just, like you said, disorienting. And if you keep leaving it too much, then the book is even more disorienting. But I think I would say that the experience of this book, I felt like I fell through a portal, which is kind of how the book opens. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we should uh, probably provide a little more context for specifically who Gene Wolfe is, other than like one of the greatest writers of all time. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Well, he invented um, Pringles, Bill. Well, yeah. So he, he when he was an engineer, he literally invented not, not the chips, but one of the, I forget the specifics of it, but part of the... Get gizmo that allows them to have the the tubes work the way they do. Yep. Right. And yep. like the, uh, so that's that's one thing. Gene Wolfe, in addition to giving us a bunch of very well respected novels, also helped give us Pringles, and that's just a life well lived. I Amen. Think. We, we can all agree that that's that's the sort of life we should all aspire to. Uh, Gene Wolfe lived from uh, 1931 to 2019. He's an American writer. Um, his most f- again, uh, Joel alluded to this earlier, but this book we're about to do is actually, I think not often thought of as one of his best works, which is exciting uh, to me, having not read any of the others. Uh, the book he's most famous for, I guess it's technically a quintilogy, quintology, tetralogy? I don't know, five. Uh, which is <laughs> The Book of the New Sun, uh, which is a uh, sort of science fiction, science fantasy thing, uh, heavily inspired by like Jack Vance, uh, which has... What is the first title? Yeah, the first title is uh, The Shadow of the Torturer. It's got that kind of vibe going on. And it's four books, not five. I'm already making mistakes. So that's what he's probably most famous for, and that was in, oh, what, the the 80s? Yeah. Uh, But this book was published in 2004. Uh, Gene Wolfe was uh, very Catholic, which is going to come up, certainly, as we're talking about the book, uh, and didn't shy away from dealing with that sort of stuff in his fiction, certainly in this one, and my understanding is in all of his others. Um, uh, I, I have uh, he was never like the most popular science fiction author of all time I, I don't know if he ever made the New York Times bestseller list if he did he certainly didn't stay there for all that long um, I think the book of the new sun I had heard of the book of the new sun before uh, but I, I didn't really start to understand who Gene Wolfe was until he died a few years ago and people started you know doing outpourings of grief the, the analogy I think that makes the most sense, uh, and, and this is just kind of a guess since I'm not an expert on these things, but there's a band called The Velvet Underground, which was incredibly influential uh, in like the 60s, but was never like the highest selling band of all time. But there's a line, and I don't know who said this, it's, it's like a parable that goes around or a proverb that not very many people listened to The Velvet Underground, but everyone who did started a band. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think that's kind of true of Gene Wolfe too. Gene Wolfe was never the most popular, but everyone who read Gene Wolfe went on to try to write great novels. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I think I think truly he his influence is I don't know. He, he's more like people hate this term. He's more than a writer's writer because he he did have commercial success, but there's a way in which um, he comes pre blurbed by all of the great fantasy and science fiction writers. Like Ursula Le Guin calls him R. Melville. Um, and I, I think I told you on the phone, I, you know, she's kind of making the claim that he's the Melville of science fiction or, or whatever, or as he often called it, science fantasy is what he wrote. But I think truly after reading this book and then um, just even the fifth head of Cerberus, part of me is like, he's he's the Melville of the 1980s. You know, like he's just the Melville of that period of American literature 
he he might kind of have that I don't know, he might have that kind of claim behind his work, I think, to be honest. Yeah, in a review of this book, Neil Gaiman said that Gene Wolfe is the smartest, subtlest, most dangerous writer alive today in genre or out of it. Right, exactly. (laughs) Neil Gaiman is at least on record saying he was the best writer working anywhere. Uh, The Washington Post, in a review of this book, said that Wolfe should enjoy the same rapt attention we afford to Thomas Pynchon. I don't know how to say his name. You know, Gravity's Rainbow, that guy. (laughs) So same, same rapt attention we afford to him, Toni Morrison, and Cormac McCarthy. And having read, not Pynchon, but some Morrison and McCarthy, I think that's a reasonable... Uh, I think that's a reasonable comparison. I, yeah. and there are ways in which this book at least feels a bit like both of those authors. I think you can draw connections between like Beloved and this text, which feels like a weird thing to say, but I actually think that that works. I think there are ways in which they're, operate, they're operating on a similar sort of level. They're obviously very different books, but I think they have some things in common. No, I, I well, and just to expand this for a second, to kind of to kind of really get the idea of how Beloved Gene Wolfe is, um, Harlan Ellison, who's someone I don't know a ton about, I know his name, um, when he re- this is just on, off Wikipedia, but when he reviewed the Shadow of the Torturer, um, he, he said the Shadow of the Torturer breaks new ground in American literature, and as the first novel of a trilogy, casts a fierce light on what will certainly be a lodestone landmark. Um, he called it. He said Gene Wolfe is writing every under every other author under the table. And I, I mention this partly because on YouTube, there's a really fascinating interview kind of like you know one of those like old school like like author panels almost it's ho- it's co-hosted bill by studs turkle <laughs> and i uh, know i've seen this actually <laughs> sorry go ahead but i've, I've found this youtube video but, yeah. So, yeah so uh, it's the weirdest piece of like american culture um it's such a which we should, i took i took about forever but yeah so studs turkle and some other guy um have isaac asimov harlan ellison and gene wolf on to talk about things and it's it's hysterical because harlan Alan ellison is like you know he he's insane when he ever goes on TV, right? I don't know much about him, but he kind of, he's aggressive, provocative, but you can tell he's like genuinely a little in awe of who he's with, you know? And specifically <laughs> at one point, he um, they're kind of talking and, you know, Gene Wolfe is saying things that you can tell Isaac Asimov does not know what to do with, right? He just doesn't know how to respond to some of the things that come out of Gene Wolfe's mouth, in my opinion. And at one point, Harlan Ellison, you know, kind of gestures to this like frumpy looking engineer in the corner who's being kind of out-talked by, you know, uh, you know, Helen Ellison at the time and Isaac Asimov always, these two luminaries of science fiction. At one point Helen Ellison is like, he's the weirdest mind of all of us. You know, like he just like one point he like he can't take he can't take it that like you don't understand who we're sitting with, you know? And um you can feel that genuine energy of like, no no no, Isaac and I are talking, but like that guy is something different. And um I, I don't know. So I, I yeah, his presence is is, you know, kind of it comes you know, <laughs> uh presaged by a lot of praise, but also um I, I don't know. It's just fun to read anything about him because he surprises everyone who comes across him. So we should probably start talking about the book at some point, huh? Oh, I guess yeah. We, I guess we could we could move to that. Okay, so before we get to that, I guess uh, let me let me give the the <laughs> the preamble to the preamble to the preamble. Um, I read this book two years ago, right before I sent it to you, and I, I loved it. I did think part of me thought this 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 book is made for bill a little bit to be honest <laughs> as much as i love that i did think i was like oh, bill bill lives in this world even more than i do um but because of various life circumstances the last two months i did not reread for this podcast which is part of my um 
if I have an anxiety, part of my anxiety is that, again, Gene Wolf fans, they know Gene Wolf. <laughs> and uh, even the rereading Gene Wolf podcast, the whole premise is one cannot read Gene Wolf, one can only reread him, which I wanted to do, and I will probably do this year with this book. But, so, all I have to say is, um, I am a little vague on some of the specifics in this book, and we thought we would use that as a way to kind of get into what the book is actually about, right? Absolutely. Uh, so I have read, I've read the first half of this book twice now because I, re- I read it last year and then put it down for a while because it's the kind of book that you have to be in the right headspace for, like I said. And then I started it over when we decided to do it for the podcast. Uh, so I've read it one and a half times, I guess, in some. So uh, that's where I am. Uh, so I'm going to provide a quick, brief summary of the book. A very brief, because I think any attempt to summarize the plot of this book is doomed, other than just the absolute highest level one. And then I have prepared a series of true-false questions that I will ask Joel, and I will comment a little bit about each of them afterwards, and we'll see how good Joel's memory is. <laughs> it's going to be so bad. All right, so The Wizard Knight. Again, 2004, two volumes, but it's it's one novel. Uh, it, it, I mean, obviously a lot of trilogies and sets you know, really work as one work, but this is uh, this is just one book. Um, an American boy goes to a magical land which is heavily inspired by Norse mythology, Arthurian myth, and suffused with Christian theology. He is given the name Abel of the High Heart and decides to become a knight. He has many, many adventures and ultimately not only becomes a knight, but probably the greatest knight in the world. Along the way, he recruits a number of followers and friends, but throughout the text, his true goal is not actually so much glory, but rather to be united with the love of his life, Queen Desiri, Queen of the Moss Elf. The book is presented as one long letter that Abel is writing to his brother Ben back in America. So it's first person, and it, it, uh, it's, it's got all the great hallmarks of an epistolary novel in that it, it is not bound to only what's happening right at the time he's writing about it, right? He'll reference things that haven't happened yet. He'll reference things that uh, happened earlier with an ease that is occasionally disorienting, like I said earlier. Um, the only sort of other thing I'm going to say, because I think trying to get into the specifics of the book is just gonna be the whole podcast is this uh sort of magical land he goes to is built in seven sort of worlds or realms or planes stacked on top of each other uh the majority of the book takes place in Mythgarther, which of course is going to sound like midgard on purpose to anybody who knows norse mythology immediately above that is sky s-k-a-i uh, which is ruled by the Oversins, who are going to be very familiar to anybody who knows Norse mythology, because they're basically just a Norse pantheon. There's not a ton of changes. Above that is Kleos, which is, uh, we don't go there, uh, but it's a realm populated by, like, angels. Above that is Elysion, which is populated by the most high god who created everything. Um, we definitely don't go there. Below Mythgarther is Aelfris, or Aelfris, I don't know how to say it, uh, Aelfris, I think, A-E-L-F-R-I-C-E, which is a land that's sort of like fairy, right? There's a lot of sort of dryads and, and kelpies and that sort of thing there. We spend a lot of time there. That's where Abel's girlfriend is from. Below that is Muspel, which is basically hell. <laughs> there are demons and dragons and everything's on fire. And below that is Niflheim, which is a frozen wasteland that we only briefly go to. Uh, and which uh, has a being in it who is apparently basically the devil. Uh, it's important to say that because we're going to be hopping between these different planes at various different times in the text, and I thought you needed to understand at least a little bit of the metaphysics in order to understand what we were doing. Gene Wolfe agrees because he definitely stops to look at the reader and break it down pretty early on in the text. So uh, 
Joel, are you ready for your quiz? <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. So, true or false? Abel meets and recruits an ogre, but this ogre is a mostly invisible thing that is described as a snake in human form, and it follows him around murdering his enemies for much of the book. True. Org. Yeah, his name is Org, <laughs> and he's terrifying. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Uh, I think he goes to show how Gene Wolfe will draw on existing fantasy concepts. It's an ogre, but then do weird things with it, because I ain't ever read an ogre like this before. No, no. <laughs> well, so, I, I don't want to do this for every question, sorry, but we first we first meet the ogre, right, Org? They think it's a, like, they think a house is haunted or something, don't they? Like, yeah, and so, yeah like, they he's, think it's a ghost. Well, but I just love that, because, like, yeah, the ogres are all about strength and, like, brutality in some ways in a lot of fiction. And here's an ogre who's defined by slyness. You know, it, it truly is a twist on the character, on the, uh, you know, the, the creature, right? Yeah, and he is brutally strong, and he gets stronger as the book goes along. But, yeah, yeah he's usually invisible. Like, you know orgs in the room <laughs> when Abel says, and I saw something shimmering in the distance in right. the corner of the room. And it's great because... Org, uh, he fights Abel the first time they meet, but Org, for whatever reason, uh, basically becomes incredibly devoted to Abel. And Abel's biggest problem with Org is not fearing him for himself, although he always finds him scary when he sees him. It's trying to get him not to eat people that he doesn't want him to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> um, all right, two. While at sea, Abel meets a man on a long ship journey who is trying to get home and whose story reminds him of the Odyssey. True or false? False? That's correct. False. Yeah. There is no Greek mythology in this book unless I missed something. Yeah, uh, no, He draws I, on yeah. several other sources, but no Greek. No, that was that was a tricky one, Bill. I was like, I don't think mm -hmm. that's in there, but mm -hmm. I could be wrong because there's a lot of references in here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, to be fair, if the answer to this is actually true and I missed it, that's possible. But I, I didn't see that, and it's also not in the companion text. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think we're good. Um... Abel goes to a strange forest where he meets Thalurian, a goddess of pure sex, who teaches him the arts of love and how to please any woman. I think that's false, but it sounds an awful light like what kind of happens. <laughs> so there's a reason I did that. So yes, you're correct. It's false. That's what happens in the second book in Patrick Rothfuss's Kingkiller Chronicles. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's a terrible 100-page diversion where it's just, and then I had a lot of great sex with Sexula, goddess of sex. But the reason I wanted to bring this up is because there is sex in this book, because Abel is a 15-year-old boy. But there's nothing like that, right? <laughs> like, there's, no, there, yeah. Abel talks about being attracted to various women. He does have uh, a series of encounters with Tassiri, but this is not the sort of book that is, like, horny fantasy, right? Like, Abel is horny sometimes, but the book is not horny, if that right. makes sense. Yep, yeah. All right. Abel learns to harness the powers of the ocean and can swim without breathing and fight with the rage of the tides in his arms. True. True, Yeah. Uh, he gets a number of sort of magical abilities, and that's one of them. Uh, although it's he, he says that it's not that he unlocked, it's not like he learned, or it's not that he gained a new power, it's that he unlocked a power that everybody already has within them. Right, yeah, yeah. Garsek teaches him, right? Or Yeah, that's right, Garsek yeah, yeah. teaches him, who is a character who appears at first as a friend to Abel, and then ultimately Abel realizes is is sort of a devil, basically, uh, and ultimately has to, he doesn't kill him, but he has one of his friends do it. It's a really fun arc. It's a really fun good, is not yeah. the right word. Well, it's a really good arc. Fun, but also, yeah, weirdly powerful. <laughs> um, next up, Abel gets a magic sword. I'm not sure if it's Eterna or Eterna. It's E-T-E-R-N-E. -E -E. I'm going to say Eterna because there's an E there. 
So Abel gets a magic sword, Eterna, which when drawn summons the spirits of all of its previous unworthy wielders to aid him. True. Definitely true. Yeah. It's so cool. (laughs) He draws the sword and there's all these ghostly knights everywhere. It's very good. It scares the hell out of the one other guy who manages to draw the sword. (laughs) All right. Abel is never afraid, and that is what makes him a true knight. False. Yeah, Abel's terrified all the time. Uh, And what makes him a true knight, of course, is that he's willing to fight through that anyway. All right. Abel dies halfway through the book as he slays a dragon, but he is taken to Sky, basically Valhalla, because the Valfather loves his courage and is ultimately allowed to return to Mythgarther. True. Yeah, true. Okay. <laughs> uh, the end of the first book is he's trying to do he's trying to to do a sort of rescue mission, which we'll talk a lot about because it takes up a big portion of the book, and uh, along the way ends up fighting and killing a dragon and dying in the process and going to space. And everyone's like, "Oh, that's I guess that's the end of the first book." Okay. <laughs> Can you imagine having to wait even six months? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. I guess I'll. I guess who? I don't know what happens next. There's more. There's like it, the, the second book's longer somehow. You know, like, what, like yeah. what's gonna happen? <laughs> um. By the way, I don't know what happens next. Is the whole book for me? I. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um. All right. Abel never loses a fight. False, I think. Yeah, he loses fights all the time. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he is sort of superhuman and, and, you know, better than everyone else, but he still loses. My favorite is, we've already seen him do a lot of great heroic things, and then he goes to uh, Duke Martyr's uh, castle where he's going to be try to become a knight there. Well, he's already a knight, technically, but he's trying to become like a knight in service to the Duke. And, uh, no, I'm sorry, it's not Duke Martyr's, it's earlier, it's Thornrolf's, it's the guy at the volcano. Uh, so he's he's trying to do that. He's trying to get to the Duke's castle, and along the way, he's stopping at this other castle and this sort of I think he's technically an earl he's a jerk and he doesn't believe that Abel's a real knight so he challenges him to a sword fight with one of his champions and you're thinking man I've seen Abel fight all kinds of stuff at this point he's fine and he just gets the heck beaten out of him because he doesn't know what he's doing (laughs) all right next up Abel goes to many of the different worlds but time works differently in each of them such that when he goes and has a brief adventure in Elfris he may come back to Mythgarther to find that years have passed true yeah, true. It's one of the central conceits of the book, is that time takes place different, or travels differently. So he'll walk into Elfris for a chapter and come back and find a year has passed. Uh, in the converse, uh, when he goes to Sky after he dies, he spends, he calls it 20 years there, although he acknowledges that they don't have years in the same way. And then he comes back to Mythgarther and like maybe three days have passed. Um, okay. Abel goes to Niflheim, the lowest of the worlds, and there meets the most low god, who tries to convince him that the highest and lowest worlds are the same, and that he is therefore both the most low god and the most high god. True. True. It's just a little thing that happens. I was going to say... a lot of time... Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I remember him going down there, and I actually, as you enunciated, like, what the low god talks about, it, it kind of rang... It rang true in my head, but I was like, I don't remember the content that well, you know? Like, I remember it happening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they go down there. Uh, they're trying to... It, it, Abel's been taken prisoner by King Arthur, and they're trying to go down there, and uh, he takes this this other guy with him, and they actually go too far. They're just trying to go to Elfris, but they, for whatever reason, can only go down. And so they go to Niflheim, and they meet this horrible fat toad thing on a throne of ice, and he tries to get him to believe that it's 
they're the same place, the highest and the lowest. And then if you look at my back, you'll see the most high God. And it's pretty clearly BS, if only because Gene Wolfe is Catholic. I'm right, like, nope. right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as they, they manage to escape, and as Abel does catch a glimpse of the back of the most low God, and it's just covered in sores and pustules. Yep, it's just a okay. weird little thing yep. that happens, and it's wonderful. Um, okay. At King Arnthor's table, Abel is served what can only be described as a mega turducken. <laughs> Uh, true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that'd be a weird thing for me to make up. No, right? I yeah. know. No, they're sitting at the table. I was pretty and it's confident. Like, it's like six levels deep. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it's a, this stuffed into a this, stuffed into a this, stuffed into a swan. Um, and it's just wonderful. Okay. Uh, we're getting close to done. All right. In Jotunland, Abel challenges the king of the frost giants to a duel to the death so as to save the beautiful Idun from the fate of becoming the Jotun's queen. False. That's correct. He doesn't do that. Iden doesn't want to be the queen. Abel feels bad for her, but he doesn't do that. Uh, the king is killed, and it becomes sort of a murder mystery for part of the book, but Abel doesn't do it. Um, all right. King Arnthor, rather than being the heroic and kindly king we might be expecting, given what his name sounds like, is a sorcerer and a tyrant. True. Yeah. And, like, maybe plays... half-snake, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when he... Abel at one point gets a magic helmet that lets him see things as they truly are, and he sees his sister as being half-snake, Morcane, and so it's probable to assume, and he never looks at Arnthor with the helmet on, but he, it's because he doesn't want to. Right, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> um, all right, here's the final question, Joel, and this is the most important one. And if you get this wrong, we're not going to be friends anymore. Okay, oh, God. <laughs> okay, true or false, Gilf is best dog. Best dog, true. <laughs> uh, Abel gets, uh, Abel borrows a dog from the Valfather pretty early in the book, and this is a dog that appears to be a, a large but normal dog, but can you know, change and become something much larger and more terrifying. It's probably the scariest, like the most serious fighter in the book on either side, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and Gilf can speak, and Gilf is just the best. Gilf is wonderful. So I think when I was first reading this book, I would just occasionally take a photograph of dialogue <laughs> about Gilf and send it to Joel and just say, Gilf is best dog. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, no, all, all the time, to be honest. <laughs> um, but it's hard to argue with that. You know, he really is best dog. And also, I, what I love about your quiz is that you, you covered so much of, like, how many, like, the book has so much plot and so much, like, elusive material, you know? Like, as far as, like, you know, King Arthur, the Norse gods. There's also a, a whole Robin Hood, Hood element at one point, you know, or at least an Ivanhoe yep. element. Um, it, it's, it's, it's bonkers. I just don't, I don't think I know of any other book that's, like, this made up of other books which is still so wholly original, at least not in the genre world. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, it's, 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 I don't know how he did it. Like, it's, it's completely original concoction, but it's made, it's distilled completely from earlier materials, it feels like, at the same time. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, you know, plenty of other books will reference, uh, you know, other books or other, or pieces of mythology, but not, I think, in such a weird way as this does. Well, you mentioned even, so at one point, um, you know, there's at one point very early on, Abel sees a green knight, which we come to learn is basically supposed to be him yeah. in sky coming, whatever. You know, it's himself he sees basically in the future. That, but at one point he alludes to being like the literal green knight of the, the poem Gawain and the Green Knight. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's kind of like he, he alludes to like that actual story as if he is that character 
and I, I and in a way that's so one to one. Like I, I can't think of a lot of stories that have done it that one to one and still tried to tell something original. Or like he has an, an archery contest, right? Where okay, he has a magic bowstring, yeah. but it's it is basically Robin Hood or, or again or Ivanhoe from Walter Scott. Like it's 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 almost a one for one illusion or reference or retelling at times that still manages to be something totally bizarre and original don't you think i do i mean he doesn't do this every page right no like no will, but things and things always come in at an oblique angle and they're also never quite exact like they're one-to-one -one in the literal text but the context they're in is always different do you yes know what I mean? yes like at one point uh he's telling stories to after he comes back from sky he spent 20 years there right sort of hanging around valhalla right and we never know everything he did there he actually references some things in the list of characters in the front of the second book that never actually comes up in the text uh, about things that happened. That's to him so there. Gene Wolf. That's like the most um, Gene Wolf element you could have described, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, like he'll say, like, the god Lyr was was great, and you could tell him anything, and people thought we were brothers, and unless I missed it, that does not... Nothing of that is in the text. It's just in the, the list of characters at the beginning. Um, there's another point when he's talking about his adventures in Sky, and he tells a story which is just straight out of the prose Edda. Uh, which is the one of the main sources for Norse mythology, uh, for for us, and not not for the original Norse mythology. I mean, but for us to read about Norse mythology, which is going into a massive cave system while out hunting giants and discovering that it's it's a cave with five little offshoot tunnels and discovering that it's actually just the glove of this one giant, right? Right. Yep. Um, and that's that's something that Thor does uh, when he's hunting down uh, a giant named Utgard Loki, uh, or also called Skrymir. Uh, but what's interesting is, in this book, there is a place called Utgard, which is ruled by a frost giant, but it's not the same frost giant that has the cave, right? That's a different frost giant in Sky. This is just a story uh, Abel is telling to try to illustrate a point. I don't remember the exact specifics. And it's very strange because that's the, the, like the pieces aren't all together, right? Utgard is the name of the castle in the Prosetta story, but that's not the name of the castle that they were going to when Abel tells the story, right? And when he tells the Green Knight story, it might actually be something that happened to him, or it might be a parable he's trying to tell to another knight. Right. Because he also later at one point references feeling like Gawain when, like, kneeling like Gawain. He has a throwaway line to that at one point. So that might actually just be something Abel is remembering from his education in America that he's using as a point to illustrate, or it might actually be something that happened to him. And because we never know everything that happened to him in the sky, we don't know, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, no, it's wild. <laughs> Um, one other thing I want to say about the book before we really start digging in is uh, describing this book makes it sound very silly uh, and not very good. Uh, you know, a boy falls through a magical portal and goes to a Norse mythology land sounds like, uh, at best, sort of cheap, fun YA, right? Uh, this book just isn't that. Um, and you can tell that from the very first lines of the book, which are, if you'll give me just a moment... You must have stopped wondering what happened to me a long time ago. I know it has been many years. You know, like that's that's different than the sort of silly book I'm describing. Or actually, the first line of the book is before the list of the characters. It's Ben, look at this first. I have been reading through the first part of this letter, and there are an awful lot of names you will not know. So I have listed most of them here. If you come across one and wonder who that is or where it is, you can look here. You will be wasting your time to read this now. It is just to look the names up in. And that's wonderful. Right. And that sets exactly the right tone that Abel writes the whole book in. It's a very sort of matter-of-fact tone. It's, uh, you know, obviously when he's describing some things, particularly later on, he gets more grandiose, but he never loses, particularly in his dialogue, that very simple, 
very matter-of-fact, very American tone, even as he's in the middle of these magical places. And the book never lets you forget he's writing to his brother, either, who he's never going to see again, he thinks. So I was going to say, so actually that's where I wanted to start as well, with, with the tone and how how ironclad the point of view is, right? So Gene Wolfe has set up the perspective of this American kid who falls through a portal, or actually, I think he's exchanged with someone, technically. Yeah, he's stolen. Fall through a portal is actually not correct. He is he is, he is changelinged yeah. at the age of like 14 or 15. Right, um, which I want to come back to, because I, I think there's obviously a very interesting element of uh, like the, the real Abel, quote-unquote. You know, he, he goes and takes this narrator's place in America and we see some dreamlike stuff there, but we'll, we'll come back to that. So, cause I think, I do think with Gene Wolfe, um, the form is everything. He does love narrators who are narrating from the future. That's a constant, um, you know, I, I don't want to say gimmick, but that's a constant tool in his tool belt, right? Um, that's basically what fifth head of Cerberus is, although it's different narrators and different times. And so it's always complicated. Um, I, it's all from what I've read. It's also what Shadow of the Torturer is, and maybe the whole book of the New Sun. I'm not sure. And then if you just glance at his bibliography, he has a lot of epistolary novels. That's a form that he feels comfortable with, and I think it's a form he feels comfortable, comfortable with because it's a way to keep the perspective totally um, consistent while also being able to, like, honestly screw with how much information he does and doesn't give you. You know what I mean? Like, this is a book that loves to give you just enough to kind of keep you going. But like you said, it's disorienting. And honestly, of the two books I've finished and the two and a half books I've read, it's the it's the least disorienting book I've read of his. He really has an interest in um, revelation of information, which, you know, every book does. Every book's based on, I think, that that's a lot of, like, the tension of every plot is how much do you know and how much do you want to know. And he's constantly playing with, like, what question you might want to know or not know. Um, but all I have to say is like it's all accomplished through tone, and I think um, I, I, was skim- I was skimming through the book last night, um, and I was just looking at the night, you know, and trying to find like a good example of how he resets the tone and how he never loses it. And I realized, at least in the night, he often uses the beginning of the chapter um, as like an explicit beginning of the chapter, where basically he'll the narrator will readdress his brother. Or kind of reestablish, like, hey, this is pretty crazy in this world. And I just wanted to read a little bit of that from chapter 21 of the night to kind of give, you know, give everyone a sense of the tone and also maybe root us in the text as much as possible before we, we fly off to sky together, you know? <laughs> um, okay, so chapter 21. That night, Gilf, who is a dog and who can talk, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that night, Gilf and I talked things over in our cabin. He did not say much, not then and not ever but he was a good listener. And when he did say something, it was a real good idea to listen close and think about it afterward. The thing was, I was afraid my wound was not getting any better, and I thought it might be getting worse. It felt as hot as fire, and when I pressed it, blood came out mixed with other stuff. I was scared. I know I have not said a lot about being scared, but I was scared pretty often the whole time I was in Mythgarther. I'll stop there because there's just like a few very small things. And like, this is something that, you know, as a, like, as a writer, what you do is you just, you get yourself into a, a place in your head where you talk like this, right? Like you're not thinking about every word, but as a reader, the diction really stands out. I mean, um, it was a real good idea to listen close. I mean, how American can you get, right? Um, yeah. I was scared pretty often the whole time. Like, you know, like, again, this is all on purpose. I think he's a very instinctual writer and no one who's worth their salt, I think, you know, pauses to think about using 
real good idea to listen, but you, you have to, you have to have yourself so locked into that mindset. And he does, he never wavers. And I do think that's one of the magic tricks of Wolf is there's something so complete and coherent about any project he undertakes. Um, honestly, I think based on just the fifth head of Cerberus, it can almost be claustrophobic. You're so wrapped up in the way that he is playing and writing and the text is so closed such a closed system that even as it references other things it really is it's it really just is a system that is building something through its you know through its own references and changes and you know different ideas here and there but i agree i think the tone of this book um sentence to sentence and not just plot structure wise it really is what what hooks you immediately and kind of what keeps you in there because it's it's bizarre right when you think like he's gonna become more of a knight or more of a you know natural mythgarthian or whatever like he he never loses his americanness and i think one thing that we should talk about which i'm sure you want to he also never loses his boyness like literally right <laughs> yeah so uh, one thing i didn't say in the summary that i probably should have is he's so he's he's maybe 15 or so when he goes there and then pretty early in the book, uh, I don't know, seven or eight chapters in, he falls through to Aelfris from Mythgarther and there meets, well, what he, he perceives it as meeting her for the first time. As we later learn, that's not true, but uh, right. we'll get into that later. Uh, queen Desiri, who is the queen of the Moss Elf, and she, uh, I mean, seduces him, I guess, and they, they roll, roll around <laughs> in the hay a lot. And yeah. then, um, but in a way that, again, it's, like I said, Abel is horny. The book is not like the book is not like describing right, that. Like right. there's a lot of nakedness in this book, right? And it's never like when it's presented like as she was naked and pretty. It's always because this is a point about who that character is. Yep. Like Abel gets these two fire elf, elf being a a e l f, right? But these two sort of salamanders, right, who follow him around and they're always naked and trying to seduce him. And it's partly just a joke, and it's also because this is sort of who they are, right? This is not. This isn't about Gene Wolfe wanting to be like, oh, look at these hot chicks, right? Because they're never quite written like that, right? Like, they're written to make it clear that they're very beautiful and very alluring and pr propositioning able sometimes in fairly explicit ways, but uh, it's not written to try to just make you, like, think, oh, yeah, I like these hot fire elf chicks, right? Um, no, I think, you said, anyway, I think so you, said it, you said it perfectly. Sorry, I just, I love that, that that Abel is sometimes horny, but the book never is. And I think it's, I think that's important actually, because the book does take sex seriously to the extent that the book is about a boy becoming a man, which I think it obviously is. It doesn't shy away from the way in which that process includes a lot of lust or whatever you want to call it, but it doesn't yeah. itself say like, yeah, you know, here's hundred pages of, you know, in indulgent self gratification. <laughs> Looking at you, Patrick Rothfuss. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so anyway, uh, Siri seduces him and knights him. Although I think the actual knighting scene happens off stage. <laughs> no, it does. I don't... No, I think it does yeah. too. It, it, it's classic Gene Wolfe where he's like, oh, by the way, the most important thing in the book just happened. But it, anyway, I was in a wood or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, after this, uh, Siri ages him up magically. So he is, he, he is now, instead of being 15, he's, I don't know, 25 or something like that. And he's huge, right? Like he's he's not the biggest guy we meet, but he's you know six foot something and, and ripped. But he's always very uncomfortable with this fact, right? And again and again and again throughout the book, it's one of the most recurring tropes. Is he'll be talking to somebody, even towards the end of his life, when he's lived, or at least the end of the book, I mean, when he's lived twenty years in Sky and is a great hero, he will again and again say something like, "You know, I'm just a kid myself. I'm just a boy." I know I don't look like it, but I am. And again and again and again, the men he's talking to who are just normal dudes will say, I know how you feel, or yeah, me too. 
you know and it's that's one of the strongest three lines throughout the book that never stops is that abel of course is literally a boy in a man's body but every man he talks to feels the same way <laughs> well and i and honestly that's one of the few parts of the story which feels like wolf is okay with you taking as an allegory you know like there's a lot of stuff in here that could be symbolism or could be one-to-one whatever but I think this one, you know, even though he's still making it weird, right? He's still kind of making it visceral and weird and rooted in the actual narrative. So it's not just like a, you know, kind of a, a light abstract notion or whatever that's like boring to contemplate. Because it's really interesting in sort of terms of like social dynamics, right? Like he gives it meat, this, 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 this symbol of being a boy in a man's body. But I think he actually is okay with you kind of taking home the symbolic element one to one. And I just wanted to say, I, I feel like I feel like it's relevant that this book was published when I mean, it was written before this, of course. But it was published when he was like 74, 73, You know, like, like yeah. I I just find that like you know he he was obviously elderly at that point, and um, it's an emotional truth that like everyone kind of knows. But it is I don't know I found that I found it meaningful. But of course I also found it very Wolfian in that. It's made mostly into like an obstacle of having conversation. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he always he always kind of comes at it from a different angle to give it something a little more interesting. So, one, I guess this is sort of both the part I want to talk about and a broader thing about the book. But so I, I talked about how there's seven realms or worlds or whatever you want to call them, right? I'm going to call them planes because I've played a lot of D and D. I don't think he ever calls them planes. Um, we spend. Most of our time in Mythgarther, a little bit, a lot in the world below it, Aelfris, which is sort of like fairy. And then Abel spends a lot of time in Sky, but we don't, right? Like, he spends 20 years right. there doing things, but we see only a few scenes of that, except just as him recalling something. Um, one of the worlds we don't see anything about is Cleos. So one of the things that the book talks about is, in every plane, the plane above it, the people who live there are the gods of the people in the plane below, Right. So the Oversons, the sort of Norse pantheon types, are the gods of the people in Mythgarther, right? And you're supposed to worship them, and you're supposed to, you know, swear by them. And whenever, on the rare occasion one of them shows up in Mythgarther, everyone drops to their knees, right? But, of course, that's interesting because that means the people who live in Cleos are the gods of the Oversons, who live in Sky, right? And also, of course, it means the people who live in Mythgarther are the gods of the people who live in Elfris, which is a, 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 a thing that the book struggles with a lot right as the characters who are just regular people are trying to figure out what it means that the fey people right who appear to be much more powerful and interesting than they are actually either do or at least are supposed to worship the peasants of Mythgarther as gods right and the first one of the first moments when this is really brought home is when uh Abel is walking around and comes to a spring with Gilf and meets the archangel Michael who is a uh, resident of Cleos, right? And they have a series of incredible, a short series of incredible conversations. But then at one point, just as a throwaway line, Michael tries to show Abel what he means about how, uh, you know, the people in one or the gods people below, and he summons someone. He like raises his hand, and someone shows up and lays down his spear and walks off. And you realize that's the Valfather, that's Odin, mm -hmm. right? Michael has just casually summoned the Valfather to make a point. Uh, which is something that Abel remembers and later towards the end of the book uses, does a similar thing to summon a host of elves to help win a major battle, the major battle at the end of the book. Um, but that whole conversation is uh, full of some incredible lines, one of which is, 
Michael is talking, and again, Michael. So Michael is two steps above Abel, right? So he's he's not just a god; he's something so much far beyond one, right? Uh, and he says, Michael says to him, you know, I know you better than your mother ever could because I hear your thought. And then he pauses for a moment, raises his right hand, and then Abel says, later I got to know King Arnthor, and he would have loved to be able to raise his hand like that, but he could not, no human can. And then Michael says, your mother never knew you, he said. I, who know so little, know that now. I make mistakes, you see. I am near perfection. Yes. What a great sentence, no, right? No, no. <laughs> I make mistakes. I am near perfection. Not not as a brag about how I am so perfect, but rather as an acknowledgement that I am only near perfection, right? Well, honestly, so I the whole the whole the whole cosmology of this book and the idea of who you're supposed to worship and not worship, it is one of the ideas that really stayed with me. I mean, possibly because. Um, I don't know, because I also like the same things Gene Wolfe likes, <laughs> you know, as far as like, I'm interested in mythology. I also have like, he's a very devout Catholic. I have a Christian background. Like that's, you know, I'm not Catholic, but you know, I'm, you know, close to that as probably most people are going to get without being it. And, um, and I, 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 in some ways, like, this is just a beautiful book of like living inside Gene Wolfe's favorite things, you know, um, <laughs> which happen to be a lot of my favorite things. But the idea of like worshiping the wrong thing, he, he makes it such a powerful part of the story. Like, like you said, the ale people from ale fries, however you say it, um, the elf, like they seem godlike until you learn that it's the wrong way around. You're not supposed to worship them. They're supposed to worship you. And that's like the most Catholic idea I could think of, right? It's very Dante-esque, which of course is also something we haven't talked about, um, that Dante seems to loom over this book as well, I think, in, in, certain, in a certain sense, at least for me. Um, but, I, you know, that, that, they, the whole, the whole, that's the whole argument behind much of Catholic theology, I think, is that um, where you direct your worship is where things go wrong. You know, so what's worship? It's attention, admiration, reverence, and if you direct it incorrectly, um, things get out of order, right? And this even happens not just to the humans, but it happens to the elf of Aelfrice, right? The person who made them, Kaluli, who's like a collective consciousness or something. There's a there's a whole you know there's a whole mystery going on there as far as their rebellion against her and the way in which you know um, the way in which. Abel is drawn into that is totally as an adventure story, but like the richness of the theology, or if you want to call it philosophy, just the, the amount of ideas he is happily throwing together, it's 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 like really it's a really joyful text I think on that level, um, the intellectual level, because I think he genuinely just in one interview he even said, you know he'd spent so much time in kind of the the universe of the book of the New Sun, and he wanted to write about like a chivalric society that was not christianized you know but of course he's catholic so like christian christianity is is just the basic reality in his opinion you know so that's why cleos exists with the archangels and elision or have you say it exists with eternity and god but like no one in the world of mythgarther is christian and um he seems to, i don't know he just seems to have it's like a sandbox that he has built to play with all of his favorite things and it i think that joy is it's contagious to be honest at least for me it was I agree. It also feels like another way to solve the problem Tolkien had writing his mythology, because Tolkien was also a devout Catholic who wasn't about to write a book about that had a you know some sort of false religion. You're right. It's, yeah. it, right. But he still wanted to have sort of a pantheon because obviously Tolkien loves 
Um, Tolkien also loved Norse mythology, right? And there's uh, a lot of it in The Lord of the Rings, not in the same way, right? But there's a lot of it in The Silmarillion and The Lord of the Rings. And he, so he kind of ducks it by having the Valar who are sort of spoken of as sort of like gods, but never exactly. And then in The Silmarillion, when he writes out the rest of his cosmology, uh, then he puts it into a pretty explicit sort of Christian or Catholic analog, right? Um, and this, is, I think, is another way to try to solve that problem so Gene Wolfe can play with his Norse gods without feeling like he's being blasphemous. <laughs> no, I think, actually, I think you're totally, and it's funny, I, I hadn't thought of it that directly. I, he's, a, he's a big Tolkien fan, obviously. Like, he wrote yeah. a fan letter to Tolkien, and Tolkien apparently wrote back um, just a little blur. But, you know, the fact that, like, what I would consider, like, the latter half of the 20th century greatest fantasy writer he, he touched base with Tolkien. That's pretty cool. I just that's that's a neat little you know historical connection. But you're right because Tolkien he talks specifically about he wanted to have a pre-Christian mythology. Like he that's what he wanted for like England basically you know, and and that's exactly what um, what uh, what Gene Wolfe talks about in an interview that he yeah he wanted to have a a non-Christian mythology <laughs> that he could play with chivalric society that he could play with, um, and even of course. Shadower, uh, the Torturer, and the Book of the New Sun also has a lot of medieval elements to it. Um, like Tolkien, he is obsessed with the ways in which the Dark Ages, he even says in this little essay I have up right now, you know, there is one very real sense in which the Dark Ages were the brightest of times. Um, they were times of defined and definite duties and freedoms. The king might rule badly, but everyone agreed as to what good, good rule was. I don't know. So I definitely, it's hard not to think of Tolkien for every fantasy novel you read, you know, <laughs> if it has an ogre in it or whatever, but like truly in some really, really weird ways, this does feel like him doing a straight up Tolkien experiment. I have one other thing I want to say about Michael, and then I want to talk about the other thing that I wanted to talk about, about this structure of the world, because this is the sort of book where every entry point takes you to 12 different, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, 12 different roads, and then you later discover that the 12 different roads are, in fact, the glove of a 12-fingered giant, right? I mean, that's kind of how the book is. <laughs> um, but it's just a quick throwaway aside. Um, when they're talking to Michael, Michael snaps his fingers, and Gilf, the dog, comes over and lays down at his feet, looking very proud. And Michael says... It does not trouble you that your dog prefers me to you? And Abel says, no, I prefer you to me, too. Me too, me too, Abel. Me too, buddy. <laughs> it's so good. Um, but so, so one thing I want to talk about is the sort of political structure of the book. Because obviously, exactly as you're saying, one of the things the book is about is, like, worshipping the right things and sort of structuring your society correctly, right? The book is obsessed with, uh, like, rank right and who can tell who can give orders to whom right and mm -hmm. uh abel repeatedly is particularly later in the book when he's a lot wiser and older although he's actually not any older exactly but you know he's had a lot more stuff happen uh like he gets a lot of squires throughout the course of the book and at one point they go to a stable that's been taken very not very good care of and he tells his then squire that like all right you have to get the stable men here to do what they're supposed to do and, and that's your job because you're a squire and you're above them, right? And he does that again with one of his later squires in a similar context. You know, Abel, if you don't treat, if you don't call him Sir Abel, he gets very mad at you, right? Uh, right. And he'll beat you up sometimes if you don't do that, right? And uh, towards the end of the book, he gets a manor hall of his own, which he spends like four days in. And he shows up, at, but he, he beats everybody else there, including the news that he's the new lord of the manor because he's flying on his flying unicorn pegasus cloud, which is great. Uh, <laughs> And he gets there, and the guard, the guard at the door says, hey, man, like, the gate's closed. you got to go away. And he just 
bodily pushes him out of the way and says the gate opens when I when I want it to, right? Which of course is correct because he's the lord of the manor, but of course this guy doesn't know that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and similarly, the you know again, you're worshiping the right beings and having the structure of your society is very important. And so there's a way in which this book feels very sort of rigid in its politics, right? Very sort of almost authoritarian. But then he complicates it again and again and again and again, right? Abel, for all that he is obsessed with rank, also will constantly sort of break the rules and hang out with the with the common folk, right? Like he eats with them towards the end when he's the lord of the manor, even though that's not what you're mm-hmm. supposed to do, right? And at one point when they're about to fight all the frost giants, it's Abel's idea to arm and train not only the knight and the men-at-arms, but all of the serving maids and all the other people, right? So he it's his idea to do that and to, to put them in a context where they, they can fight and they're considered maybe not as important, but certainly more important than they would ordinarily have been considered, right? Uh, the One of the main things about the book is that we discover that Desiri, the queen, has stolen Abel from America uh, to sort of train him up to be the sort of knight that King Arnthor would have to listen to and then implants a message into his mind, right, to go and give it to King Arnthor. And the message is the people of Elfris berating King Arnthor for being a bad king, right? Yeah. Which means it's the people yeah. who are not only, who aren't, aren't the sort of people who are supposed to worship the ground that King Arnthor's subjects walk on, right, are then lecturing the king for being a bad king. So, and that's understood to be sort of a good thing, right? It doesn't work, right? But Abel's not like, oh God, I can't believe I've upset the natural order. He doesn't, that's not his reaction at all. His only reaction is he's right. mad that he's failed to convince him, right? The the book's politics thus get very complicated, right? Because <laughs> for all that there's this sort of structure that you're supposed to follow, it also seems like the best rulers, the best people don't actually follow it, right? Except totally. when somebody sort of defies them, right? Uh, and so like a lot of this whole book, it he, he it's hard to get just one reading on it, right? I don't know exactly what this book's politics are, right? <laughs> no, no, I don't even. I mean, I mean, I, honestly, I, I barely know what this book's theology is in some ways. Like, I, I feel I feel pretty yeah. confident about it because it has a certain Catholic structure to it, and it feels, um, it feels, yeah, like you said, it feels like it's it, it's avoiding a certain kind of heresy very carefully, but but truly, like. I, I, I think that's one of the, the tricks of Gene Wolfe, which people often people often do this very poorly, but he, he won't leave an idea alone. And so, you know, this isn't quite what the word means, but like he kind of overdetermines everything, right? He kind of crams in as much as possible in a way that like, I don't want to turn away from this, I don't want to turn toward this too much, but it's, it's actually what you're talking about, kind of, you don't know what the politics are. I, I think that his ability to kind of overstuff symbolism into his symbols like that to me is one of the ways in which he truly is Melville-esque. Um, I had brought it up at one point, and I won't read it because it's too long. But there's a whole chapter in Moby Dick on like the whiteness of the whale, okay? Because Melville was, all, you know, he's aware that the whiteness of the whale was symbolic. But then he goes on to talk about like, you know, whiteness of the whale reminds him of, you know, a clerk, a, a clergyman's you know, collar, or also the the whiteness of, you know, oppression. And like, you know, he just kind of goes on and on about like the ways in which white is good, bad, and in between until by the end of it, you're like, okay, I, 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 this feels meaningful still that it's a white whale, but I, I couldn't tell you in which direction it's most meaningful. And I do think Wolf is continually doing the same thing. Like Abel himself, he gets scared, he talks about, but the violence part is an essential part of the story. This is a world which is, okay, if it's a chivalric kind of world um, without Christianity, 
even the one with Christianity, of course, was a very violent world, <laughs> right? Like I was just um, reading about Robin Hood or listening about Robin Hood on a podcast partly and like the, the guest of Robin Hood, kind of the 15th century tale of Robin Hood, you know, he like, he beheads people, you know, like, like one of his, one of his squires like beheads a boy or something, you know, like it was pretty brutal, violent stuff. And I do feel like he uses that to constantly complicate um, the nobility of Abel, who is of course a 15 year old boy as well, which is also another element of like 15 year old boys, often violent, um, even just like in a playful way. I don't know. So yeah, but I, I think that's an essential part of Wolf is that we can't pin down his politics, right? That, that's like part of what makes him Wolf. Okay, one more thing I, I did want to hit before we get too much further into, like, the mythology is I want to go back to kind of the beginning and ask you about this person who becomes Abel being a changeling. <laughs> um, right. Did, so so do you – so at one point – I get this partly from the recap in the little companion book we have, but I remembered it once it was um, – once I was reminded of it. There's, there's, there's a point where Abel – who we know is Abel, but his real name is Arthur Ormsby, right? Um, yeah, which we discover in literally the last line of the book. Yeah. It is the signature <laughs> to the letter. That is right. that is that is the first time. There's a few times the word Arthur or Art shows up as a name in the book, particularly in a list of the series lovers that are sort of cast on the wind, right? I think the word Art shows up in there. But uh, so if you're paying incredibly careful attention, you might be able to figure that out. And also, of course... Art versus Arnthor is very fun because you think Arnthor yes. is going to be the King Arthur figure, but he's actually a tyrant and a sorcerer, even though he's still got a sister named, whose name starts with M, who's a sorceress, and even though he's married to a woman, he's worried about her fidelity, whose name starts with G, right? But he's, he's not Arthur. Right. And, of course, our boy is Arthur, and people are offering him the crown all the time Yep. by the end of the book. Um, he never takes it. Um so anyway, yeah, it's literally the last line of the book is when we learn his name. So that was a little, I interrupted you. But no, it's okay. I well, I, sure I, I'm clear. still in this partly from, again, uh, let me get his name right, Michael Andre Druissi's companion to the Wizard Knight. But so what, so there's a scene in which we kind of, we kind of get a, a dreamlike idea of what happens to the, the real Abel. Abel, who is changed with Arthur and goes and takes Arthur's place in our world on Earth. And there's like a scene where like we kind of see what happens. Like he's in a, you know, there's an ambulance and whatnot, right? Like that. I don't know. I just didn't know what your take on that was, or like what you thought happened plot-wise, and then also what you thought of it, kind of how you enjoyed it, or, or maybe was were confused by it. So there's a couple brief. It's not very many, but there's a few brief references. I think Abel at one are uh, Abel. So Arthur. I'm gonna try to keep them straight now. So Arthur says at one point, you know, Abel was switched for me. I think, uh, but it's a throwaway line, right? And then we have, towards the end of, of the book, uh, Arthur has a vision of uh, a highway and an ambulance on the highway, and he becomes, like, he thinks he's in the ambulance, right? And this identity blurring is very important because yes. both Arthur and Abel had mothers who mothers and fathers who died or left when they were young. They both had an older brother who they loved whose name starts with B. It's Ben and Berthold, right? Both of those men were in love with a woman whose name starts with G, Jerry and Gerda, right? And there's there's real blurring where Berthold, who's gone a little mad because he's been hit in the head by giants too many times, uh, consistently mistakes our boy, Arthur, for his actual brother, Abel. And sometimes our boy believes it, right? And at one point, our boy meets sort of like the ghost of the real Abel's mother, but he also feels like maybe it's the ghost of his actual mother. And, like, there's a huge thing in the companion book where they go into, like... Yep 
theory casting about whether they are actually the same person or whether they're a sort of a, a clone that's caused by and I, I don't know uh, I'm actually not <laughs> I don't I haven't read the book carefully enough to get into that but this identity blurring goes on so Ab- our boy sees this ambulance in this vision and he thinks he's in there there's also another brief moment where he's having a dream where he's on an airplane and somebody's t- talking about how g- glad they are that he helped stop the hijackers right <laughs> right yes uh, and there's there's one or two other short references making you think that maybe those are glimpses into the life that the real Abel is leaving, leading, leading in America, right? And maybe he stopped 9-11, or at least diminished it, uh, which is fun. <laughs> it's a sort of heroic thing, I guess, that our boy is doing in this time frame, so why not, right? Um, and these are the... Uh, I don't know. It's, it's not much. It's not a major through line of the book. In the intro to the copy I have, written by Yves Meinard, who the book first book is dedicated to, he talks about how we get glimpses of it, but he really overstated it. It's just glimpses, right? Yes. And I think that's exactly right, because this isn't a story about both of these changelings. This is a story about our boy, right? But it makes sense that he would get these occasional glimpses of somebody else. But it also means that you can read the book as the hallucinations of a dying man in an ambulance if you want to. Now, well, I, as I've said... <laughs> that's what I was going to... Yeah, I was going to set you in, up for in, this. <laughs> as I went on a pretty big rant about two or three podcasts ago, I'm not going to do that because I don't like it. I think it's fine that it can be ambiguous. I don't disagree with the fact that you could read that, but I think if you want to read that, you should go home and rethink your life. Um, does that make sense? Well, it could also, what, the last thing it could be, well, but, but this is where I think, to me, this is why Wolf is interesting because he's just throwing this stuff in the air and he, he catches all of the important kind of like, you know, juggling pens he launches right all of the really important ones he catches to a satisfying degree which i think is important in, in fiction like you know you put stuff out there and the way you you let it land matters but but the whole identity blurring which is a perfect way to say it i think is actually another way in which he's having fun with something that he also is not like it, he's taking it seriously because it gives emotional texture to, to some some of the p- parts that happen, right? You know, like, I don't know, the idea that this could be a dying man hallucinating is not the point. It's that, you know, he's still kind of interested in the way in which he can bring home, I think, the violence and the heroism of what Abel's going through. He's giving it a really concrete point of contact for our world, right? Like, that's it's, it's creating an emotional link, in my opinion. But it is a way in which he, he's having fun. And so, like, like actually, like you, I don't think he cares at all about the answer. You know what I mean? Like, he's not interested in, like, like giving you enough nudges that you think... Like, for example, the third option is that, of course, Abel um, slash Arthur, they're the same person, and he's already died, and this is the afterworld, right? That this is a yeah. Dantean afterworld in which you kind of climb and descend levels based on, first of all, your life on Earth, and then, of course, your actions in that world after death. Um, and that's all. But it, it, what I like, though, is that that's all in play at exactly kind of the right um, amount. You know what I mean? Like he is playing with it. He is not obsessed with it. And it is not supposed to be decoded. Like that's not the that's not the reason he's sharing it. Right. Um, right. But I do think it's an, I, I do think it's an essential part because the, especially the, the mom part with Mag, which you're right, the companion book has a whole range of options on that, which I. I, I'm not sure I care about either per se, except that you know, the idea that this 15-year-old boy might be seeing the ghost of his mother, who he never met, that that matters, right? Like that's an emotional yeah. factor that the book wants to take seriously, even if it's not going to ever resolve the idea of it's actually his mom or not. Um, but again, the, 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 there's a real richness there, which I think Gene Wolfe is able to kind of um, 
you know, cultivate. And I think you're right. I think it's ground where others have tried to cultivate a certain richness out of that ambiguousness, but they, it always end up, ends up just being a, a, a sixth sense problem. You know, like, hey, oh, oh, is this a trick or not a trick? We're not sure, you know, um, which is not quite sixth sense, I guess. But anyway, so yeah, I, I but yeah, I, I think it's important still for what it does emotionally, but I agree with you that it's not supposed to be decoded. Um, well, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, this book is in the first person, right? As we've talked about, right? Which means what matters, the book is a lot about what Abel's thinking and what he's doing and pick, painting this picture of Abel for you, right? Right. And Abel actually takes the fact that he's gone to another place in stride pretty much. Like early on, he thinks maybe he's just in a different part of the world, in his world, where they have swords. and like he's. But he, he doesn't... And this is, of course, probably because what actually happened is he spent some number of, of years in Elfreis that he then forgot about, um, which they erased his memory so he could deliver the message to Arnthor better, right? But he takes it in kind of in stride, but he's got to be doubting himself all the time, right? So right. for him to have moments of doubt, like maybe you're just dreaming, has to be true, right? And it's just yeah. these moments of doubt because Abel's not the sort of guy who worries about that kind of thing exactly, right? <laughs> But I think that some of these moments of doubt and ambiguity are also important to remember that this is the psychological portrait of our guy who's writing the book, right? So exactly. he is ambiguous and doubtful. And so I don't think the book really makes a lot of sense if he's actually hallucinating this in an ambulance. But I think it's entirely reasonable that at least occasionally he would wonder if maybe something like that is what's going on. So that, that's kind of the same thing you were saying about the emotional resonance, but I wanted to, to hit the point a little bit like that. No, I, th I think, yeah, that was a concrete um, way of putting it, to be honest. Um, you had something you wanted to talk about. Oh, I, mean, I was actually, was, I was going to ask you if you wanted to, to go off in a different direction. Um, I, mean, I have more stuff, but if, if, you know, I thought you had something else as well, to be honest. Oh, I have several things. Don't worry. Uh, okay, one thing I want to talk about is the way Gene Wolfe gives you world-building information in this book, okay? So there's a lot of stuff you need to wrap your head around for the book to make sense. There's all of the planes-hopping stuff, right? There's the different kinds of people that live in these worlds, right? There's, you know, all kinds of things. And he does that in one of two ways. He either does it by having Abel teach a squire something about the world, right? Particularly in the second book. He'll say, well, Taug or, or Svan or Wiston, he gets three squires. Uh, here's how this works, right? Uh, the other thing he does, particularly in the first half of the book, he'll look and talk directly to Ben, the intended recipient of the letter, and he'll say, all right, look, this isn't going to make any sense if I don't describe this to you, right? Uh, and my favorite moment is when he sees his first Angerborn, the first frost giant, um, and he says, yeah, in half a minute, the whole monster came into view. I am going to have to talk about the Angerborn a lot, so let me describe this one to stand for his whole tribe. And then he explains what they look like, and includes a reference to something that happens 500 pages later, right? Uh, and says, now when you have imagined a man like that and fixed his appearance in your mind, take away his humanity. Crocodiles are not any less human than the Angerborn. <laughs> it's so good. And, he, and it keeps going. I mean, I, I could read that whole five or six paragraph bit, because it's wonderful. Um, I also just realized that he tells us right then something that turns out to be a plot point later, which is that the Angerborn are never loved. Interestingly, not that they never love things, but that they are never loved. He actually just tells us that on page 81, even though it's sort of a reveal yep, when it happens that 700 sound, pages That later. sounds right. <laughs> Wild. Uh, so, you know, that's one, it's a wonderful way to get your information out there. Obviously, it helps because the language is also beautiful, right? But it also, it's him using this form, right? You can do that in a letter, right? 
you can you can tell your friend that you're writing your letter to, hey, I'm gonna have to talk about this. So let me tell you about how this works, right? That that's entirely it doesn't take you out of the fiction at all, right? Even as it literally takes you out of the scene, it makes a great deal of sense that that's what Abel would be doing here, still pretty early in this letter, and that's one of the great triumphs of the epistolary form in this book is the way he uses it to give you information so that you can understand what's happening because that's exactly what the narrator would be doing here too it avoids the as you know problem right yes yep exactly well and also it um i think it also is, is a tone thing I, I think he he really is having a ball with the idea of some american dropping into this crazy world and even though like he lets that lie for as long as he needs to um whenever he wants to resurrect it for a moment like you've just described it feels it, i don't know it, it in some ways we don't have to get to this now like in some ways abel is you know he's literally the first reader of his own experience and in a way that i think is meant to not only like you know help the reader along but also kind of like push the reader into noticing more than you would the first time, you know, because he keeps telling you this is important, but actually, of course, there's something important below that that he's not noticing. You know what I mean? Like, so it, it kind of becomes a game of, like, um, reading beyond what he has pointed out as important. Um, like you just said, he gives away a, a huge plot point, and I definitely didn't catch it the first time, and I'm sure I wouldn't catch it the second time. Well, again, I only caught it because I was just looking up that, you know, after having finished the book, you know, eight hours ago or whatever so right. um so that that's i think i want to springboard here to talk about one of my favorite parts of the book which is the list of characters at the beginning of the book because i think this is this is related right so the moment i realized this book was special was in literally the beginning of the book so like a lot of great fantasy novels it has a list of characters right so which is a nice thing to do for your reader when you're writing a big epic fantasy, right? Is, hey, if you don't remember who these people are, go look them up. Because I'm not going to stop every time to say, this is Duke so-and-so, who you might remember from this, right? But rather than just being a character, Duke of whatever, right? Or it's it's got these little sentences, some of which are just very, you know, who's out? He's Thunrolf Stewart, right? But some of them have little epithets about like his emotional relationship with them right and so you know agars he was martyrs marshal and i have known worse people right yeah baki a fire elf girl i met at the tower of glass she and uri said they were my slaves right which that already tells you a lot right so he meets this weird fire girl and she and somebody else said they were his slaves, but he doesn't claim them in that way. And, and throughout the book, he doesn't. He repeatedly says, you're not my slave, stop it. Although he still orders them around a lot. <laughs> um, and then, like, Ben, he, he puts Ben's name there, even though the letter's for Ben, and says, my brother back in America, who I still miss. Did you read this, Ben? I know. You know? Yeah, I know. Or even he has um, his Sperio, my math teacher. She was pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know, having, having a math teacher and a list of, uh, you know, fantasy names, like, that tells you a lot about what you're getting into, doesn't it? Yes. Right. So, the first time he writes Desiri in here, who's his, his, the great love of his life and ultimately his wife, he just says, the queen of the Moss Elf. But then later on, he has queen of the wood and says, this means Desiri. A lot of people are afraid to say her name because they think she might come. It never worked for me. And then at the end, so he's got his list of names there, and he's got a short paragraph, which I'm just going to read all of. There they are, Ben. It has been easy for me to name them. What was hard was making you see them. 
remembered that the Austerlings had long teeth and starved faces, and the Angerborn stunk. Remember that Desiri was a shape-changer, and all her shapes were beautiful. And that's, you know, page five of the book. And I was like, yep, sold. <laughs> you got me there, Gene. On board. I know. No, Let's I take know. this trip together. <laughs> and that's... Uh, and that's wonderful because, again, it's it's useful for the reader. I did go look it up sometimes, right? I was like, who the heck is this? No, yeah. totally. Uh, and it's also something you can imagine doing to your letter to your brother. And it also sets the tone of the book so beautifully, right? This is a book which is going to have giants and knights and swords and magic and dragons. But it's going to be written in this tone. And it's really going to be about what these things mean to our guy. And our guy is a very good writer, but he's also not generally speaking in really flowery language, right? All her shapes were beautiful. You could imagine writing that in some much more, you know, dramatic way, and you'd be wrong. The understated tone of much all of Abel's dialogue and most of the narration is part of why this book works so well. There are definitely moments when he, you know, uses some flowery language, but it's always at times when it matters, and it's usually when Abel is describing things that he saw in Sky, right? Yeah. Or things like that, where, of course, he's going to use different language, right? That's where he was... That's where he was a hero and hung out with Thor. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love I was, this book, Joel. No, I was just trying to think how to how to how to get her. so in the MFA world, you know, which is like a horrible place. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm very a vast Stygian <laughs> wasteland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I so I should say I, I'm really grateful for my MFA. But there are a lot of the things people get frustrated with. Um, are related to workshop, of course. You go into a workshop, someone critiques your, your work, and it's always, it's truly workshops are about becoming better readers than writers in some ways, I think. But anyway, there's a phrase that we all found ourselves using, and we actually talked about it one time. And it was like it was like a way to be nice almost, where you would tell someone, like, this was a good section, you just need to figure out some way to elevate it. Which, of course, was like, this needs to be better. <laughs> and we don't, <laughs> we don't really know how to tell you how. But I, 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 I had a hard time not wanting to use that word in my own head, even just now as you were reading through the list, as a way to describe what Gene Wolfe is usually doing, right? Like, so he has a list of characters at the beginning of a fantasy novel. Not very innovative. But, like you said, he 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 gives it a texture, and um, also he gives it more information <laughs> than it would usually have, right? And part of that, like, part of that actually is what I said earlier, that he... He is so good at um, immersing himself in the perspective of what he's working with, right? So, like, he's chosen this epistolary form, and so, of course, nothing exists outside of it, right? Like, a lot of books could have this list as almost a, um, an extra textual thing, right? Something the author put on it, not the narrator. Of course, for him, it has to be the narrator, because that's how he thinks. And then he uses that perspective to make the list more interesting um you, you you talked about how just now with like little sides but there's even like um there's even the part where it's a uh or whatever his name i don't know one of garvin's men at arms he was a good guy too right like that americanness is never dropped and i just i don't know i found it i found it to be like a really easy way if not a very helpful way to talk about gene wolf in my you know at least at least to myself you know at night when i was listening um <laughs> that he elevates basically every sort of um classic trope or you know plot line whatever it is he finds a way to take it and put a twist on it or add it you know 
add it to a different idea that makes it feel new. And usually he do, he's doing it through tone at the sentence level. And sometimes, you know, he, he's, I think he's doing it mysteriously. Like it just, he's a good writer, you know? But, um, but yeah, I do think, I don't know. It, it, it feels like selling him short to say he elevates the material, but that's basically what he does at all times, I think. Yeah, I mean, like I, as I said earlier, this book can be described to sound very juvenile, and it just never is. And it's it's not necessarily because of what happens. I mean, sometimes it is, right? Sometimes what happens is something really transcendent. But, you know, yeah, at one point they get attacked by bandits, and Abel has to prove that he can fight, and so he fights the bandits. Like, that's that's in every fantasy <laughs> novel, actually. If you don't have that, it's... Uh, but the way he does it is so incredible that it takes that sort of tired trope and turns it into something really new, right? Yeah, basically. Uh, I wanted to, so along the line of this being a epistolary novel, written by, again, someone in their 70s, um, even early 70s, I, I do think one of the very, very smart um, ways of talking about the past in this novel is that um, the emotional weight he gives things doesn't always feel justified by the text. And the biggest one, I'm, I, and this might, this might not be true on my second read if I if I went through it again, but on my first read, the way he talks about Sir Ravd, or if you say his name, mm-hmm. you know, like Sir Rav was like the best knight, or whatever, right? Like it's such an important point for him, and it is. Like you can see why it is in the text, but there's an emotional weight given to his memory of Sir Ravd that is honestly it's one of the few ways in which the book is like not written by a 15 year old boy in a man's body because that is how memory works like i i got this is a dumb aside in some ways but like um not because of covid but during covid my fifth grade um teacher passed away and she was a family friend we knew her you know outside of school as well but like she was someone who was important in my life at one point but like when i went to her funeral it just landed on me how pivotal she was despite how small of a real estate she had in my life. And there's no real way to to convey that. You know, I, I could try to, right? I could talk about the context of my life when I was 11 and how she pushed me this way, not that way, whatever. But, like, there's, not, there's no real way to actually capture the emotional weight given the details of what happened between us. And I felt like that's true of a lot of parts in this book. And he, he says it up front, like, how can I get you to understand how important this was or how much I loved Dissery or whatever. But that, to me, does feel like an old man's perspective influencing um, the memory of the narrator, you know? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, even when when he meets Dissery, again, it's not actually for the first time, but it's what he perceives as the first time. Uh, like, she's, like, she had sex with him and they have sort of some strange conversations and he comes away just loving her so much. Uh, and And yet... I don't know if that was necessarily clear until a couple chapters later, which I don't think I have the site in front of me, when he looks at Ben and says, look, I don't know, you're not going to understand this if you don't understand that I loved the Siri. Do you know what I mean? Well, that she was, she was the thing I wanted to get to the whole Yeah, time. at every point. All, yeah. Throughout my whole life in this book I'm going to tell you about, she's the only thing I really want, and I can't get to her. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know... Another way, which, like, again, because the, the major scene where she knights him, it occurs off stage. We see a memory of it later, but he doesn't, it's not even the thing he's thinking of the most right. uh, when he's writing about it, right. right? He's writing about the first time he had, you know, made love to Desiri and all, and what he noticed there and what she was like. Uh, so he, it's like he forgets to write about it, right? <laughs> 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 so we're, we're as surprised as everyone else when he walks up to some knights and says, I was knighted by Queen Desiri. We're like, were you? I don't remember that. But it did happen, like, you know. But we, we're as almost as surprised as he is. Right. Yeah, um, totally. He'll, 
uh, this is, I think, related. He will sometimes not tell us about stuff that happens, like I said, uh, until he's telling someone else about it a few chapters later, right? So he'll say, I saw this, and you're like, you did? I, I don't remember you seeing that. But he just didn't tell us the first time, because why tell us twice, right? Because what's what's more important about whatever it was that happened is this conversation we had about it later, right? Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> and that's, that's actually, this is where, I mean, I think... I think sometimes the word postmodern gets tossed around with Gene Wolfe because it's a very like classic postmodern move to, to kind of take a honestly, you know, Pynchon does it too. That's why he's mentioned probably in that little blurb that you mentioned that you read earlier. Like, you know, he, like he takes a murder mystery and he kind of like t- turns it inside out until it becomes something wholly different. And usually it becomes something about it becomes a book about language and misunderstanding and you know, so forth so on. And a lot of that feels true of Gene Wolfe, but I actually it just it doesn't feel accurate to call him postmodern because there's a coherence to everything he's doing that that feels too um, too solid. You know, like you maybe have to kind of sometimes press on the text to, to to feel like you have to kind of read into it carefully and you know push it and push yourself a little bit to find the coherence. But once it's there, the structure is really solid. Um, but there is a way in which, like you just said, he, you know, he's interested so often in how we talk about things that happened. He's almost more interested in the language of that than he is in the thing itself. And that is kind of postmodern to me, you know, making language, or maybe modernist, making language sort of the primary thing we're thinking of as opposed to the story that the language is telling us about. Um, all to say, though, this is a pretty rollicking story still. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. No, there's lots of just great adventures. There really that is. In this story. Absolutely. Um, no, there really, really is. I, I do want to go off on one little tangent before maybe we, um, I have you maybe finish up with some of your thoughts. So, th- so Gene Wolfe, like I said earlier, he inspires a sort of fanaticism, I feel like. Um, I'm sure there are people who just love him and kind of put him away. And I, I, maybe I will, too, to some extent. But, like, the people who love him study him whether they are scholars or not i mentioned those podcasts earlier we have a companion text to this book um, that i've talked about throughout and in this companion text one of my favorite little blurbs um is when he talks about this guy he talks about um arthur ormsby's last name i don't know if you read that Mm. part i did um so so we've talked about um, King Arthur, I say his name, Arnthor. <laughs> That's just how I'm saying it, yeah. at least. I don't know if that's uh, So correct. King Arnthor is a, a clear kind of stand-in for King Arthur, except that maybe Abel is the true King Arthur personage of the story, and Arnthor is some sort of mixture of, like, Vortigan and um, Uther. You know, like, you know, kind of a, a, a pre-Arthurian, Arthur-like despot. Um, but, so there's a, but there's an Arthur through-line, clearly, that Abel's interwoven with and here's the um as michael andre uh calls it here's the automastics about ormsby the name (laughs) ormsby (laughs) is either elm place orm or snake place orm with an e the latter is interesting because of arnthor's presumed half snake body if he is like his sister it might also be a code orms B or Orm's by equals by Orm, meaning near worm, i.e. Pendragon. <laughs> you know, because a dragon is a worm and so forth. Yep. You know, so, so I, I actually don't think this stuff matters at all. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't matter that that's possible to like to get from Orm's B to Pendragon. But 
Except that I, I don't know how much Gene Wolfe intends this stuff, but he, he loves leading breadcrumbs like this. Like, that is part of the joy of him, is that it's possible he has a character named Arthur Ormsby because it is literally a version of Arthur Pendragon, right? Like, that is the kind of playfulness, but also intellectual detective work he has built into this novel, and I think into all of his novels. Um, I, I don't know. I, I found it fun to go through. I don't know that it, it's going to make the text a lot more interesting, you know, per se, but it, it is amazing that he is kind of, you know, he's even he's even made the name a possible breadcrumb of something, you know, that unravels into something else. One thing I appreciated about the companion text, so I caught... And nothing like all the references, but I caught some. You know, I know Norse mythology okay, right? And so, like, I, I caught the, oh, yeah, this is a story out of the Edda, right? And I, I caught right. some of the names, and obviously I was like, oh, the Valfather, huh? Do you think maybe that's with one eye? Do you think maybe that's Odin, the Allfather? I think maybe, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, there's a way in which I, I've praised Fritz Leiber before for being cheekily lazy in his naming conventions, right? I think I did it on the podcast last time, uh, where he'll he'll just use dog Latin, and so on to just sort of tell you, well, this guy's bad because his last name is Ovarta Mortis, so, you know, go with me there. And obviously nothing about this book is lazy, right? But there's a way in which some of Wolf's naming conventions, particularly for the, the Norse gods, or the Oversons, I mean, are so clearly on the nose that he's clearly doing it on purpose, right? Because he can do other references that are more subtle when he wants to, right? And yeah. so having Thunor, the god of you know, it was Thor, which I think is even an old name for Thor. I was going to say, no, uh, it's like the old Saxon name, basically, or something. Yeah, you know, Tyr just shows up. I think he's just named Tyr, right? Uh, Lothur is Loki, although he complicates it, actually, but you know, <laughs> yeah. he generally appears to be Loki. Uh, Fenrir is a big evil wolf, right? Yeah. And then again, the Valfather, who doesn't, I don't think we ever get a name for him. Uh, you know, he's he's not hiding the ball here, and I think that's, because it could be lazy, but everything about the book is not lazy. So I think he's just trying to be very upfront about what he's doing. He wants you to catch these references, yes. right? Yeah. There are references he's making which maybe are intended to be more, you know, obtuse or, you know, Easter eggs or little jokes or whatever. But those aren't it, right? He's naming These are the Aesir, and that's what you need to think that they are, right? That's You are going to understand this book better if you just go ahead and substitute Odin for this guy. Because like I said, there's a few of them he complicates further, but not many. You know well, what I mean? Even, even the Arthur Ormsby thing... Let's say Ormsby is sort of a, a complicated way of doing Pendragon. I mean, Arthur's not subtle, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I, like I, didn't, I didn't have to decode Ormsby to get to the idea of King Arthur, right? Like, because the name's Arthur. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I do want to... So in that little interview I, I listened to um, where he talks about wanting to, like, write a chivalric novel that's... Uh, in a world that's not been Christianized. I, I also, I was going to say, what also I think I, I like about the naming convention, though, is that he, he mentions that, you know, if you just said it in England, Thor would be called Thunar or whatever. Like, he says that, right? Mm. And yeah. I, so I think there's a way in which the, the kind of the slight shift in names, it's not just... Um, it's not just to be a playful version. I think it is to kind of get at the idea of like, these were the gods of Europe, you know, like at least Northern Europe, right? Like these are the, and like it, they were called different names here and there, but he's trying to kind of situate it in a, in almost like a realistic way of like, these were the beings that existed, whether you were calling them this or that, they were the same thing, you know? Um, and I, I think, I think it yeah. is interesting that with Michael, there's no messing around, right? Michael's not, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, a, a Hebrew version or something, right? Like, it's Michael. <laughs> this is the Archangel Michael. Um, 
But I do think, I think part of the game is that, you know, he wants to kind of give it an historical flavor almost, right? He wants to kind of rehistoricize or kind of, you know, re-weirdify these Norse gods to kind of make them more vibrant in some fashion, um, which I liked. I mean, I, I did, I, I love the Vol. And also, like, he gets the names perfect. Maybe, maybe the Vol father is a thing that exists in some European country. Like, maybe he's just taking that from, you know, a, a different version of the Allfather. But, like, it's the perfect way to talk about Odin without saying the Allfather, right? Like, it's, I don't know, like he, he gets the naming perfect, whether it's stealing it from history or not. Um, the little twist on it, I think, still sounds so great. But, I don't know. So, I, I, I think, I'm like, I'm probably running out of steam for specific stuff. I don't know, if, I mean, not, in some ways, never, but also, like, I, I don't want to drag the podcast too far beyond, <laughs> you know, our limits. But I'm sure you've got a few more things, Bill. So I've got, you know, a hundred little things, but I want to talk about one sort of, I want to ask you a, a terrible question, okay? Oh, okay? And I'll answer it first. Is there anything the book doesn't do well? And I'll answer with, I don't know if I actually think this means it doesn't do well, but uh, our boy does not write very much like a 15-year-old from 2001. He writes a lot like a 15-year-old from about 1955. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's, I don't actually think that's a criticism because who cares, right? And I also think that these sort of more, G. Shuck's language he uses sometimes highlights or heightens the difference between him as this sort of miscellaneous American kid, right? But like on one of the later things, I, I wrote a mark on it because I love it. Uh, I forget who he's talking to, but somebody tells him some news he likes and he just says, swell, right? <laughs> Which is one, wonderful, because it's still like, this is after he's done all these heroic things and he still talks like that. Right. But also, of course, you know, I get, I don't, how many kids in 2001 or, or whatever were saying swell, right? <laughs> I mean, I was. Uh, well, I don't know. Clear, you like, you and I might have been actually. You know, I mean, we I probably that, yeah. was. But yeah. <laughs> but I don't think Art is supposed to be the you know a weird nerd. I think he's supposed to be sort of a normal kid, right? Right. He talks right, about right. a couple times about how he was now big enough to play for the Vikings, right? Well, he um, actually says he references some people as being as tall as NBA players, right, or something. Yeah, at one point, yeah. yeah. And he t- and he talks about playing video games at one point. He says this was the moment that felt most like a video game to me. So which okay, is, I, I thought was. I actually wanted so this is a thing I, I did want to talk about. I'm not sure I can I'm not sure I have a great answer for what he didn't do well. I, I think with Wolf it's hard because he wants things to be dis- disorienting in a way that becomes that becomes pleasurable. Um, but there were times at which I, I I could have used either more of a scene or less of a scene. But it's hard to say like if that was true because I I just hadn't finished the book yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just yeah. hadn't gotten far <laughs> enough for that to become a better version than I realized it was. Um, but so it's, it's so funny because a few weeks ago you wrote about how Piranesi, Piranesi, you know, Piranesi, how do you say it? I think it's Piranesi. Piranesi. I, I know. Don't it's a, know that. It's Ita- oh yeah. That's, that's how it's Italian. You know, it's Italian. So yes. Um, so you talked about how that book, which we both love by Susanna Clark or right. Yeah. Um, how, uh, it, it has elements that were almost video game like, right? And it was funny because yeah. when I when I read that, which is a great little um, substack you did, but I actually that was my first reaction to this book. Is I almost mm-hmm. and I think after reading more of Wolf, I think it's less of a video game playfulness than I thought it was originally because he he just loves to put you in the brain of someone who goes through stuff. And he has no problem with, like, creating MacGuffins that, that turn out to not be important. You know, like, he's talked about, like, he's fine creating something that matters until it doesn't. But there's a way in which, like, the endless next thing, the side quests, the the way in which the game is never done, the quest is never done. But honestly, this book did feel like a video game to me at time. You know, you're dropped into a world that you don't know anything about. 
and the the way the information is revealed is often it often felt like um, until you finish the book. This is why I say I'm not sure it works as well. But the the, the level of reveal of information to me felt video game like because I think a lot of games that I've played they often they often hint at having a richer and deeper world beneath the surface of the gameplay, but actually you never really get there. You know what I mean? Like it's not yeah. it's not a novel, right? Um, Dragon Age has so many good things to it. But truthfully, you, you stay pretty on the surface as far as what the world is or isn't. And that's one of, I think, the better games that does world building. And at times, that is what this felt like, that the, the level of information he gives you about the world and the rate at which he gives it to you, it felt 100% at times like a video game, especially the ways in which, you know, this kid is like almost like compelled to keep going because that's the mechanics of the book. Do you know what I mean? Like, like at yeah. times it felt video game like because like like you said, like he becomes a hero after he sleeps with Disarray, basically or whatever. But like, there's a way in which he's dragged into these conflicts, almost sort of like, yeah, mechanistically, like like a video game. And again, I I feel less strongly about this now that I've read more of Wolf, and also I think he's so. Um, immersed in the old folklore and mythologies and if you read some of the old stuff those actually also feel video game like because stuff just happens for no reason you know like yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. and the quest just always continues because they have you know another another uh troubadour came along and added a verse right so like um there's a way in which he's still playing with that mode more i think but yeah i just there was a time when i was first read read this book actually it's on the glass tower when he's ascending it you know where where i was like this is a video game Someone should make a video game of this novel, which I still kind of believe, by the way. I, I was just thinking that. I, I was So I was thinking, like, how would you adapt this into a movie? And the answer is you don't do that. Uh, I don't know how you do that in a way that doesn't do violence to what makes the book so good. You actually could make a good video game. I, I think you I could. Wouldn't trust it to, I wouldn't trust it to any we could. developer <laughs> right now because you'd need to have, like, you would need to put a lot of money into it and it would need to be a very... I don't know. Weirdly, I think you would have to make it less texty, right? Like, because the, yep. the instinct would be to yep. have a lot of dialogue. I actually think you would have to not do that. You'd have to bake the mechanics of the book into the gameplay at such a deep level that I don't know if most people would be willing to do that. It would be a weird game. I would play it. Maybe when I win the lottery, I will. I will fund, you know, <laughs> Bioware or somebody to make this. No, yeah, it would. That, actually, I wouldn't trust Bioware with it. That would be the best uh, adaptation, I think, as well. Though it would be a good video game, but I wouldn't do it as anything else, almost, to be honest. Yeah. So. Um, so I have my usual list of 16 fun things I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, two things. This book has the best dog and the best cat. Um, True. We we did we did kind of disrespect Manny a little bit. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, it, fantasy authors love to sort of write about cats, right? Uh, Lovecraft loved cats. Uh, he's not a fantasy writer exactly. Although when Lovecraft writes the most about cats, it's in his Lord Dunsany stories. And of course, this book also draws heavily on Lord Dunsany. So there, I made a connection. <laughs> Boom. Um, but uh, Manny is sort of the ur cat, right? And he's he, he's always talking about, well, this is what cats do, and this is how cats work. And he's always like he's actually very loyal and very he works very hard. You know, he does a lot to help Abel and his friends, right? But he always does it in a sort of playful, like I might not kind of way. Uh, and uh, at one point, there's just so many great Manny one-liners. I'm not going to try to do anything like all of them, but he'll he'll uh, he's hanging out with Taug, who is uh, Abel's second squire and one who is actually not a narrator, but he actually 
stuff happens in the second book that Abel didn't see. And he, he just up front and says, some of this I didn't see, Ben, and I'm just going to tell you what they told me, right? So we get a lot of chapters that are not from Taug's perspective exactly, but are sort of, right? And at one point, they're facing to understand, and Taug says, I thought you knew what this was about. I thought you knew what we were doing. And Manny just says, all cats are brave. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Uh, you know, at one point, somebody said, well, Manny, I'm not going to tell you to do anything. And Manny says something like, well, yes, I mean, the law is that a cat may do as he pleases, right? And uh, it's great, although, of course, it's complicated because Manny isn't just a cat. He's an elemental spirit bound into a cat, right. and the being we know of as Manny is actually the sort of amalgamation of the two. Yeah, but... He also just drops out of the book at one point. Did I miss him? Does he just disappear no, he at does one point? he disappear. But also, isn't every cat an elemental spirit bound into a body? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Still no, it's... pretty... Like, almost like how Abel is a boy in a man's body is a very accurate symbolism for aging. I also felt like this elemental spirit symbolism was pretty perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's he's great. He's maybe the best cat in literature. Um, he's, you know, you, you could definitely take all of his lines and, and print them and make good money the on only, Etsy. The you know only I mean? cat who might be better is the gun-wielding demon cat of the Master and Margarita. So I, I would put him in there. I haven't read that one. <laughs> but honestly, I haven't read that. honestly, Manny at times reminds me of that cat. I, and I thought, I wondered about um, if it was an influence, to be honest. I wouldn't be surprised. I have not read that book, but I'm sure Gene Wolfe did. Yeah, probably. Um, he really does just drop out of the book, right? Like when they do the time skip towards the end when when uh, Abel goes to Niflheim and comes back out and the whole country has been sacked by the Austerlings. Um, I think he's just gone at that point, right? I, 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 mean, I was, At that point, I was reading it kind of quick. I don't remember the specifics, but I do remember Manny disappearing. Like I remember it, it yeah. being a thing. Yeah. Which, of course, makes sense. He's a cat. At some point, he's going to just <laughs> do his own thing. Uh, but I want to talk more about Gilf. So there's a conversation, and I, I don't I can't actually find it in my book, but I remember the gist of it. Uh, Gilf, whenever he gets, whenever Abel's really threatened, will transform into like a much larger, darker, and scarier thing, right? With teeth in his mouth that would have surprised Abel in the mouth of a lion, is a quote, which is great. Uh, and Abel's scared of him the first few times. Yep. He actually tries to leave him somewhere, yep. and Gilf finds him anyway. And Abel's apologizing, and at one point he also says, so what are you? And Gilf just says, dog. <laughs> <laughs> and Abel says, yeah, I know, but how is it that you can, like, change? And he says, good dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, uh, oh, my gosh. That's, this is what I mean, though. Like, this is Gene Wolfe. I do think you can almost get a sense of it in this interview that he gave where he was kind of, like, laboring on his, you know, like, he was extending his masterpiece, basically, right? The Book of the New Sun is his masterpiece, and he was kind of extending it with the Book of the Long Sun and the Book of the Short Sun. And then he was like, I'm going to do something really fun you know what i mean like I, I, that yeah. that is the vibe i get from a lot of what even you and i are talking about and i'm remembering because i mean these are basically they're obviously just straight up jokes but they're also someone who's having a ball like a talking dog yeah get the most out of it you know like go for it gene wolf when he always he always feels like a dog right he yes. talks in short declarative sentences he's not stupid you know he's he's probably just as smart as everybody else right but he still is a dog right like he he speaks a short declarative sentences if he doesn't know the answer to something or if he thinks that abel's asked him a dumb question he just won't respond <laughs> yeah he doesn't usually talk when anybody other than abel is around he, by, by the end of it he kind of talks around the rest of abel's party right because abel kind of gathers a party Again, sort of like a video game actually, I, right? actually like that was one of my things <laughs> yeah you kind of collect these side characters he just kind of goes around collecting people and then they almost all show up at the end um they actually don't lose very many on the way out. There was a few, but not too many. Um, 
a few other just small specific things. The Angerborn blood is horrifying. Yes. Uh, because a couple times they talk about, you know, and the Angerborn was bleeding everywhere and all the little critters inside were dying. Right? Uh, no, like, it's the horrifying. <laughs> like, what? where you and I have blood cells, the Angerborn apparently have things that are visible to the human eye <laughs> <laughs> swimming around in their veins, which is wonderful image yeah. and he doesn't hit it too hard nope. he just hits it a couple little times yep. and each time you're like ah. <laughs> um a couple of just i, I want to do about three i think sort of semi-profound lines here give me just a moment um so abel meets garsek who is also called setter uh pretty early on and he heals him and he you know is his friend and he's nice and it's also pretty clear that he's basically becoming a tyrant over trying to be tired of her, all of Elfris and probably beyond, right? Right. And so he's he's a bad dude. He's not literally the devil, because that's the god, of the, the most low god, yeah. right? But he's the one who behaves the most like one, right? But he was still a friend to Abel, and he was apparently, it appears to Abel at least, like he was actually a pretty honest friend. Like he was he was pretty straightforward about what he wanted, and he, he was kind to him, right? And so later on he ends up, he's swimming uh, in a magic place, it doesn't matter, and he says... Although I knew Garsek for a demon, I wished that he were swimming at my side, as he had in days irrecoverable. It is well, I think, for us to learn to tell evil from good, but it has its price as everything does. We leave our evil friend behind. Yeah. Huh. And that's, you know, I don't have anything else to say about that. It's really good. Um, they go to Dream, the Dreamland, because it's a, it's a book that's partly based on Dunsany, so you'd have to uh, at one point. And he shows Taug, his squire, about things. And the colors are great, right? They're incredible. And Taug says, they are wonderful. And Abel says, they are yours. And if ever you give them up, this will be a land of blacks and grays. He just has a little I didn't time that. to do a yeah. cool... No, that's... He has time to do just a little cool dream thing in there, right? Yeah. That's, well, that's <laughs> what I mean. I, it genuinely feels like everything Gene Wolfe really loves, let's just play with. This is just a sandbox I'm going to play with until I don't want to play with it anymore. Then I'll do something else. The last thing I want to talk about is, um, so, but Abel goes to Sky, right? Valhalla, right? And he, he is sent back because uh, he misses Desiri, even though he doesn't know who she is because he drank a sort of a memory erasing thing. So the Valfather sends him back and restores his memory, but extracts an, uh, or an oath from him, right? That, well, you've been in Sky for so long that now your authority is not of Mythgarther. Your authority is of Sky. You essentially are an Oversyn now. Right. right. So the people of Mythgarther should basically now be worshipping you, right? But here's the deal. I'm going to send you back to Mythgarther, but you cannot use that authority. You cannot do the sort of high magic that you can do now. You can't do it. If you do it, I'm going to pick you back up and take you back home. And also, because you've lost it, that means you don't have the authority of Mythgarther either. So he's kind of outside of this structure by the for the second book, right? And there are several times when that complicates his life when he realizes he could do something, but he can't without breaking his oath. He tweaks his oath at one point in a fight against the Austerlings towards the end, uh, and he gets punished for it. Uh, and then he, it doesn't matter, the details don't matter, but he has promised to break his oath to someone who helped him, right? And you're always waiting for him to do it throughout the last really breakneck hundred pages, which is just a very, it's a war between right. uh, Celadon and the Austerlings. Um, and so you're, you're you're always waiting. When is he going to do? Is he going to call lightning? What is he going to do? Right. And the thing he does the most is he goes around and he heals all of his hurt friends. That's actually the primary thing he does to break his oath is he uses his authority to restore sight to the blind and to make a, 
a hunchback man be able to stand up straight and to take his two friends who are old and didn't get to have the life together they should have he makes them young again right and that's really cool first of all well it makes and, sense. and the um it's it's, it's bold Bertold, right like that's who he makes yeah, yeah. so i also like well, he, it go ahead sorry well, he heals several people. He heals. He makes Berthold and Gerda young again, and then yeah, I mean, I know what you're about to say, so I'll let you say it. Well, uh, but he helps a lot of other people too. He just well, he just restores a brother to his life, right? Like that's yeah. that's what he he's able to kind of like. It's a gift, but it, it also is a beautiful moment of like this brotherhood that he lost by leading Ben. He kind of gets to have a second chance at. Well, he actually sees Berthold as Ben for a moment in that moment. Right. He doesn't see Gerald or Gerda as as Jerry, interestingly, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he makes Unce his hunchback servant, fixes his back. He restores sight to, oh, the guy who kills Garseg, Valley or whatever it is. He does a couple, he heals Gilf. He does a couple other things like that, right? And there's a couple things. First of all, that's sweet. Second of all, obviously, those are the sorts of things Jesus did, which I'm not going to hit too hard, but I don't think that's an accident. And <laughs> yeah, third, <laughs> the theological uh, foundation of the book is when he's talking to Michael. I haven't talked about this yet. He gets to thinking about what life, like what it's like to be on Elysium, where where God and only God lives, right? The Most High God, and he says, "I guess it would make you proud to get up there and see all these things you've made and all these people below you." And then he says, "No, I realized that if you were any good at all, it would make you kind." Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. And he says, "And if I was, if I was somehow in a position where I was dealing with all these people who were like some of the squirrels or children, I guess I would just try to take care of them as best as I could." and hope that someday they would grow into somebody I could have a conversation with, right? That's not quite word for word, but it's very Well, close. i got to tell you there, too. He, I mean, Gene Wolfe is also writing as a parent right there. Because that is yeah. that has truly been, like, the arc of the last three years for us. We've, we've got one kiddo who is, who is harder, to be honest. And for so long, like, the struggle was not just that I got mad at him. It's that I got so mad at myself, you know, because of what you're saying. Because what, what he says, that it didn't feel... It didn't feel like goodness to have anger increase, and it took. I mean, I feel like it had, I, think, I think. Sorry, this is like weirdly confessional, but like it, things did change in the last few months, in I don't know, last year or so, where like I, I feel like finally there's been enough personal reserve to kind of treat him as kindly as I've always wanted to, because it is. It's it's really you know like when you're up above someone watching them, they're powerless, and they have these innate struggles that I mean. Uh, you know, God's different. He's all powerful, but like, like, like you can't solve. You cannot solve their their struggles in the way that you'd like to. And it does. I think, yeah, it does. If if you're good, if you are good, and I think probably helped by something good outside you, um, it makes you kinder. At least that's that's the goal, you know. And I find that, yeah, I I have totally forgotten that, but I I I do find that very profound, even if it's very simple. And I think it's important that. You know, at the end of the book, he's this great hero. He could be a king. He chooses not to be. He can do anything he wants, right? And all the things he does to break his oath to the Valfather are not to commit great acts of violence, right? The moment when he really reveals that he is now something above, right? Right. What he does is he's kind. Yeah. On an individual basis to, like, six people, right? Yep. No, you're right, yeah. <laughs> and that's what he does. Perfect, yeah. And it really works. So... This is a hell of a book. It's a hell of a book. I haven't even talked about his magical bowstring that he has, which <laughs> means it so he can't miss, and also whispers to him the dreams of dead people in America every yes! day. Yes! <laughs> oh my god. We didn't talk about uh, Garvin or Gavayan, right? You know, like. Garvin, yeah. yeah. We didn't talk about him, which is fine. We don't need to, but like, that, this book, I mean, 
I don't know. I, I, I love Gene Wolfe partly because, you know, as a genre writer, he has to enjoy plot. And, and I, I really do think that one of his literary trademarks, I hope, as people kind of keep reading him and, and you know, praising him, is he, it's a reminder of, like, you know, plot is one of the things you're supposed to make artful. You know, like, if you really care about books, um, you can't keep making them artful by taking plot out. And uh, there's even a – Brendan Taylor's a literary writer who I, I like. Um, we've had some exchanges before. And he, he, he had a great thing a year or two ago talking about, like, character vapor, that so many modern writers try and make characters, you know, mysterious or interesting or provocative by kind of, like, making them less of a character, right? They become sort of mm. these wispy – abstracted things on the page. And I think the same thing happens with plot that like in your, in your efforts to innovate or like I said earlier, elevate, you often destroy. And I think here is a robust example of how to create by doing more or doing it truly differently. And I don't know, I, that, that's one of the ways in which I feel Wolf is already working on my psyche as a writer is to kind of embrace plot. Like if you're good at it and if you like it, embrace it. Because from, from the time of Ian Forster, Ian Forster in um, Art of Fiction or whatever it is, he talks about like if he could get rid of plot, he would. You know, And a lot of writers I know have that same mentality. And it's hard because like, at times, yeah, what I love is also language and character and emotional depth or whatever. But I, I love Gene Wolfe because, of course, like everyone, I assume, who read books as a kid, what you first love is the story. And I, I actually never want to get away from that kind of simple love. Like the older I get, I do feel like I get simpler in returning to that sort of notion of reading that all the other stuff has to be hung on the tree of plot. You know, all the stuff that you stay for that makes it brilliant has to still exist on like the bowl, the con, you know, the really solid trunk of plot. And I think Gene Wolfe is like maybe the master in some ways of elevating his structure without losing any of like the substance of actually telling you a story. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what else I can say on that, <laughs> but I, I really, I really love him. I really love him. And I love, and honestly, I love him after this book, but after reading fifth head of Cerberus, I love him even more. And I'm, I'm excited to keep reading him to be honest. Yeah. I picked up a copy of the book of the new sun, as well as a collection of short stories. I'm going to wait a while though. Um, before I get into it, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it's... this took a while to get through, and not because it's bad, quite the opposite. No, it's heady stuff. It can be heady stuff, not because it's so intellectual, because it just, yeah, there's a certain, there's a certain strong whiskey element to it, you know. <laughs> so, all right, anything else you want to hit, Bill? Or are we? I mean, a hundred things, yeah, I but know. I think we're gonna call it. I, uh, I, uh, I like this book a lot. I'm very glad you got it for me for my birthday. So thank you, and. Uh, yeah, I think that's all I have for this this particular one. Uh, I don't think we know what we're reading next in September. No. I think we do know what we're reading in December, but I'm not going to announce it because we might change our minds. Uh, so we'll let you know at some point, probably when we put up the podcast. I've been bad about <laughs> telling people on Twitter what we're up to lately. Yeah, well, same. <laughs> uh, we, we hope to have a couple more surprises for you this year as well, but we'll, you know, as always, we don't announce those until they happen. And, uh, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening. Um, read Gene Wolfe. Um, I, I think is the takeaway from this podcast. Yeah, right? join 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 uh, the Wolf Pack. 
Right, Bill? The Wolf Pack? Yeah, the wolf pack. Oh, Bill, goodness. join the Wolf Pack. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the Wolf Pack? Oh, because his name is Wolf. I get it. Okay. Yeah, all right. I don't want um, to, you know, <laughs> claim any literary significance of my own, but that's that's top of the dome, Bill. That's top of the dome. I mean, that's, yeah, that's that's incredible. That's a, it's a very subtle pun. I wouldn't have expected it. It's excellent. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, as always, thanks for listening to this podcast. And Joel, thanks so much for talking. And uh, I hope you have a good day, all right? You too, Bill. Thanks, man. <laughs> all right. See you later, man. Bye. Bye. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.